Kia ora koutou. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Epic Aotearoa, Create a Better Future podcast, and in particular, this special series, In the Service of Others, Who Dares Wins. Our guest today comes from a tactical policing and counter-terrorism background, starting with his role in the WA Police Tactical Response Group in 2000. Our guest then moved into the world of close personal protection in a post-war Baghdad in 2004, and following that went on to serve for eight years in the highly secretive Air Marshal Program, leading small team operations throughout Australia and overseas. Our guest today, also after 15 years of law enforcement, He's adapted his knowledge, skills and experience across a number of industries, including construction, agriculture, mining and remote field exploration for the purposes of helping to mitigate risks faced in those particular environments. With a keen interest in military history and professional development, a chance invitation for our guest today to walk the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea in 2009 kick-started the next stage of his life's journey, becoming a trek guide eventually morphed into his own trekking business called Kokoda Crossing. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mr. Travis Hokart. Welcome, brother. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Brian. That's a hell of a welcome, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a long time to get my head around a lot of those words, but, uh, mate, it's, it's great to, uh, to have you, and thank you for making time. For those uh, that uh, be tuning in, we've just spent... Uh, Travis has kindly spent the last sort of 45 minutes, almost an hour working with us to try to get this sorted out because both Brian and I were not much help to him in getting him onto the the software. So well done, Travis, for persisting and thank you very much, mate. (laughs) That's okay. We've had to adapt our skills over the years, mate. It wasn't wasn't an issue for us when we were probably serving in the the police and the military, but this day and age. I reckon, eh? Man, but so yeah. good to have you on, and, and thank you very much for making time. We're mindful of your time, Travis. But, um, mate, I just, I guess, looking at the information that you provided, because we've, we've had a little bit of a back and forth, and you've sent through some really interesting topics, which we really want to delve into with you. But I guess, as, as every experience and story, so I'm told, has a beginning, middle, and an end, um, maybe you could talk us through the perhaps the, the beginning, where you're from, um, first of all, and, and sort of what your drive was to join the police force in general and move on to do a couple of things from there. Yeah, so originally I'm from Melbourne with my family and right. uh, we moved over to Perth uh, when I was about 13 years of age. And from there... I was uh, I went through high school and uh, and then my interest at the time was actually in physical education. So I went to right. uni, did a, uh, a bachelor of science majoring in human movement. So I was really interested in the phys ed side of things. Yeah. And from there, I I did what a lot of Australians and New Zealanders do. We grab a backpack and we go venturing. So <laughs> I went up to North America and and worked in the ski fields. And uh, I worked with a heap of New Zealanders over there. Right. And we're actually there was an acronym for all us guys over there. We're known as Jaffers. 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 What was what was the definition of that or the meaning for that? Just another F in Australian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I asked that is because they have a similar term for Aucklanders here. Oh. And they have yeah, just another Aucklander. <laughs> 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 yeah, but uh, the, we, we, it was actually great uh, working over there in the ski fields, the Australians and New Zealanders. There was a really good camaraderie. And uh, I remember one night we actually challenged the uh, Canadians to a game of ice hockey on one of the frozen lakes. So right. Anzacs versus the Canucks. <laughs> How did that go? And, oh, we actually won. We actually Did you? Yeah, well. 
Yeah, it was pretty good. We, um, but we actually we, we, we played the man. We didn't play the puck. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was our only way of any hope of winning because we had no skills and none of us had ice skated since we were. Like growing up, it's in Australia. Ice skate, you know, when you're eight, nine, ten years of age at these ice rinks. Yeah. And after that, there's no exposure. So uh, yeah, we had to get a bit aggressive, but we won in the end. And, uh, <laughs> that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Yeah, it was great. So so that was awesome. And I uh, spent 18 months travelling overseas, wow. yeah, Canada and, and America, and it was just a great wake up call to the world, I suppose. And um, how old uh, were you, sorry, Trev, at the time when you were uh, doing all that 20, travel? 22. 22, right. Yeah, nice. yeah. yeah, so I was pretty, it was a pretty good age. I'd been to uni and, and I was yeah. still probably sheltered a bit, you know, coming straight from high school to, to uni. I hadn't seen the world and, and it was a great wake-up call for myself to get out there and before the days of mobile phones and instant access yeah. to home, you took off and the only correspondence back home was, was letters and also the occasional phone box where you found it. So you put in your, <laughs> saved up your 10 bucks worth of phone, worth of coins and put it into the phone box and you bring home. So nice. you had to, had to survive pretty much on your own and, and learn to become, I suppose that was the start of learning resilience and, and yeah. yourself was back then. So that was, uh, it was a great experience. Um, traveling Excellent, there. man. And, awesome. Uh, yeah. So I did that for 18 months before I came home and, yeah. And at that point, I, I I wanted to. I think I thought I wanted to use my degree, but wasn't sure. So I joined a gymnasium just as as a gym instructor, and yep. got some experience doing that. And during that time in the gym, all these police policemen started filtering through the gym and uh, started talking to them. And and I started to really look up to these these guys and thought, these gotcha. guys are, are pretty tough, you know, <laughs> these guys are hardcore. <laughs> and they walk into the gym with a uniform and a gun on, and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. So I got talking to them and then I realised that it was something I felt like I wanted to do and I yeah. thought, oh, this, this seems like an exciting career. But, but when I chose that, when I thought I might go into it, I thought I could use my phys ed degree and become like a phys ed instructor at the academy. Gotcha. That was my first thought. Yeah. And then when I finally joined, I thought, nah, <laughs> that's not where I want to be. You've got to be out in the street. Yeah. So... So my catalyst for joining the police was all those uh, police officers that I met that worked in the that came to the gym to train, and I was working there. Yeah, that's awesome. And and so I'm imagining were they they must have been pretty receptive to your questions and stuff at that time. They didn't sort of flog you off. They were they were sounds like they were quite open and happy to answer your questions. They were, and I think that that is similar to what we probably get now. You get young people talking to you now and asking questions about your background and what you've done. Right. And I think we're all quite deep down. You're sort of proud of what you're doing and uh, very happy yep. to impart that knowledge. Yeah. So I, because they didn't brush you off, they showed an interest in you, mm. which is so important in life to show interest mm. in other people and yeah. where they're coming Absolutely. from. So yeah, they said to me, Trav, give it a go. You should give it a go. So I, with that encouragement, I, awesome. I you know, sent the paperwork through and yeah, nice. away you went. Worked Trev, when they were talking to you and, and yeah, they were, they were showing interest, did they pull out a notepad, their notepad, and writing stuff down, and they're giving you that second look, that side glance? As a no, <laughs> no, 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 no that it was, was all legit. Yeah, it was pretty legit. Mate. <laughs> I was very honest, very honest hoppers over in uh, Western Australia. Uh, very good, very good. <laughs> yeah, that's right, mate. That's that's very cool to hear, and I love how you spoke about. Um, giving of your time and wanting to impart mm. that knowledge and also it's a, it's a valid point I do I agree 100% you know I think we <laughs> each of us are, are 
a quite happy and to a degree not a boastful way but to a degree happy and proud of the stuff that we've been able to do and if we can share and impart that knowledge like you've done and like you've spoken about then that can only be a good thing for the next generations coming through mm. yeah i i wanted to ask you then so with that encouragement and then and then stepping into that field what was your police basic training and all that sort of stuff like for you as as well you would have been what 22 still 22 23 now Going in, yeah. So I was about 23, 24 at that stage when I went gotcha. in to join the uh, join the academy at uh, yeah. in Perth. And but yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was different for me. That was coming. That was really different uh, coming yeah. from uni and school and the and the looseness of travel overseas, <laughs> going to a highly uh, disciplined and yeah. old environment like the police academy was a massive eye opener for me. Yeah, yeah. And what what sort of I guess. What stuck out for you in terms of that process and you going through it? I, I get the the very structured and disciplined environment. Was that difficult for you to adapt to initially? Uh, no, I don't think it was difficult. I, it was a shock, but I felt yeah. that I could do it. I felt mm, that yes. I had the ability to do it. And I realised that just looking at and talking to police officers that were already serving, I realised that that was a requirement. That's what you actually had to do. Yeah. And so I guess in a way I looked up to them and thought, well, that's what they've done. I've got to do what they do. So I followed those who came before me. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Mm. And was there, was there anything that you found particularly that stands out in your mind that you found particularly challenging? Uh, I suppose getting my head around the fact that I was going to be a, a policeman <laughs> and, <laughs> and going into the world. And I probably I did doubt myself in some ways as to whether I was actually up, up for it, whether I was a suitable candidate for that. Yeah, I never grew up thinking I was, you know, really a tough guy or anything like that. I had no, that wasn't me, and I felt that hearing the stories, it, it's like these coppers have to be tough. They've got to yeah. be tough because they're yeah. in the streets, they're fighting, they're going to domestic disputes, they're going to pub brawls and yeah. things like that. And I thought, Putting yourselves in harm's way in between all those things. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, where everyone else is running yeah. to the left, you've got to run to the right mm. <laughs> toward the yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah. Right? which is similar for all emergency services and obviously military personnel as well. So yeah. uh, I think just getting my head around the fact that I was going to be in harm's way and mm. I'm actually up for this was a, was a question I, I, I yeah, asked myself. Wow, awesome. And were there many, I'm interested, how many, do you remember how many people did you start with and were there many that, that failed or that didn't get through the, the whole police academy process? Most of the guys got through. Yeah, we had a group yeah. of about 33, and I think about 30 got through. There was a couple okay. of them that yeah. uh, dropped out early days. Yeah. I remember one guy saying he dropped out because he didn't like shift work and paperwork. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, case. Yeah, wow. it's a bit strange. But most, most of the crew got through, and, and what's nice today is that I'm still in contact with a lot of those Oh, awesome. Former, former uh, comrades from the academy. Yeah. We all graduated in 1996, so it's a long time ago now, 25 years, but still yeah. in contact with quite a few of them, which is fantastic. That is, mate. That's awesome. Wow. So good to hear. Your once you So once you graduated, what was it? Is it called walking the beat? So you're on the beat for the next, what, 12 months, 24 months, is it, sort of thing? Or Yeah, oh, pretty, oh, sort of. You. In Perth, you generally go to the booze bus, what's called the booze bus. Okay. Yep. Yeah, for, for testing alcohol, you know, drivers yep. and sort of things. So you go to the booze bus and then you get uh, sent out to uh, police stations to, to do general duties. 
It's such a general I suppose you are walking the beat, but some people walk the beat in the city, which is legitimately walking around the streets. Yeah. And other people go to uh, suburban stations where you're mainly in vehicles doing vehicle patrols. So that's where I went. Right. I went to a a station and and did uh, vehicle patrols for for quite a while. Yeah, nice. Awesome. That's awesome. And what I want to ask then, so we've got that brief snippet um, because we had uh, a colleague of yours, Todd, on not so long ago. Yeah. Um, his one, his <laughs> one will be released a little bit later on, so I won't divulge a lot of the stuff that he. But he had some shared some funny stories, man. <laughs> but um, how was it? So when? What was the catalyst for you then? Because you're in the what I'm in. Pardon me if I get the wording wrong, but you're in the general uh, police force, and then you've made a decision. Now you want to go to the TRG. How did that come about, and what was the the trigger for that? Because you've graduated '96, but you're in the TRG by the time in 2000 comes around, so it's not long. No, no. I spent about uh, two years doing general duties, and right. and I just looked around and thought, what else is there? And at that stage, when I first joined the police, I was naive as to what options you've got within the police force, and right. And that's something that uh, was a real opener because when you get in, you get exposed to all these different groups and and you might get um, introduced to, you know, you might go to a job as a domestic policeman, but you get introduced to the tactical response group that come and help out on a, on a job. And gotcha. all of a sudden you start looking around and going, all these other departments. And so I looked at these guys and with the TRG guys, I looked at them all dressed up in the black and the big gun yeah. and thought... I want to do that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a kid in a lolly shop. Like you grow up playing cops and robbers, but then you think, oh, I could take this to the next level. And and I think working with specialist groups in the police, you there is, a, I suppose, a level of respect of those guys, not just the TRG, but there's other specialist groups. You know, you've got the covert surveillance guys and you've got the yeah, workers right. and people that have to do I suppose, extra training to get there and there's yeah. a certain level of respect for those people that need to, to train to get to that next level. Mm. And and I felt that I was going okay as a general duty policeman but I thought that, well, this this looks interesting. This looks really interesting and am I up to it? Could I possibly do that? And that was a massive question for me. Could I possibly do it? So, And with yeah. that, what was your... So you're having that... Was, was there any doubt? Was it, was it doubt, is that what you were saying? Or, or was it... You had that question and then you wanted to go test yourself and try it out. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolute doubts. Uh, yeah. I'm not a person who mm. grew up with, with firearms or explosives. Right, yeah. And I didn't feel as though I was, you know, as I said, tough. So, I, yeah, absolutely doubted myself. And I remember talking to – and, and the, the reputation of, this, of the selection course for the tactical response group is that it's just horrific. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that's, rel- that's relatively, rel- speaking relatively, because compared to obviously Carter course and things like that, it's not the same. But as far as police goes, it's considered one of the hardest things. And yep, I remember talking bet. to one of my general duties uh, colleagues and I said, mate, I'm not sure about this. He goes, well, what can they do? They can't kill you. Yeah. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. I thought, yeah, okay, they, they're not meant to, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah, actually, yeah. Well, not on purpose. Not on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not meant to. It's not, doesn't, it's not intentional. It could happen. Yeah, I have faith in that general broad belief. Yeah, yeah. It could happen. Well, that's yeah. great. So yeah, so I got advertised on the on the computer, on the police computer, the old mainframe days, and it came up as an expression of interest for the selection course. And so I said, yep. right, I'm giving this a crack. I want to have a crack at it, see where I'm at. Awesome. So did you, did, Trev, did you find that um, that 
you you as you reflect back that your mind your mindset started to switch. Yeah, you started to think, well, I actually can do this. I actually can because you said, yeah, you you hadn't grown up around firearms or explosives, or um, yeah. and you don't consider yourself a tough dude. But um, well, you seem like a, a Liam Neeson clone to me. So we'll <laughs> we'll we'll talk more about that later on with the air right, marshal thing. Yeah, I've got some questions about that, my friend. <laughs> but anyway, so um, so that, did you find that your mindset started to switch? You, you actually as you started to do things, you're going. Hey, I can't do that. I, I'm I'm becoming a lot. Is it, is it because you were doing it, or was it because you were saying, "I think I can," and then try? What do you attribute yeah. to that? I think I think I backed myself physically. I, I was always mm, okay. mm. I could always run, and I, I enjoyed going to the gym. So I felt physically that I could back mm. myself. Yeah, and I was given. I spoke to a couple of actually. I, served, I, I spoke to a serving TRG guy at the time at off duty sometime and. He just looked at me and said, he looked at me in the eye, and yeah. I said, I'm interested in joining. He looked at me and he said, how badly do you want it, mate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, dead yeah. face. Yeah. Yeah. You, mate? And I said, yeah, I want it bad. He goes, because you're going to have to have that mindset. If you want to get in, you're going to have to be totally committed. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I've got to have this commitment. Then I forced uh, a friend of mine had a, col- a contact at the SAS down the barracks. Right. Back in those days... We could source the Carter Course selection program, or the, the training course. The training program. The yeah. training program. It was like a twelve or sixteen week training program. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this thing was going around on photocopy. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty <laughs> pretty dated, eh? Yeah. Secret documents. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember uh, this guy. I sourced it from this this guy down there, and uh, got it. And it had all this training, and it's got. Mm. Pack marching for you know yeah. twenty kilometers at thirty five kgs and yeah. oh jeez, <laughs> going to be horrific. But but in the police we we held the SAS guys up up here. We we just thought these these are the guys of the cream, and we wanted to be like those guys. We wanted to work hard, and we felt that if we trained to a level that, uh, that the Carter the Carter course guys were training to, then it would stand us in very good stead. So we really, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. um, blow smoke up your ass too much, but we really held mm. you guys in very high regard. So we got this document and I started training it and using it. I thought, right, I can, I can, I can smash this. I can do this. You know, not knowing if I'll pass the course, but my intent yeah. was to prepare as best as I possibly could uh, to give myself the best chance. And if they thought I was suitable, that was going to be a great day. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. awesome. Yep. Good question, B. Thanks for answering that too, Trev, and going through that, yeah. taking us through that process. Because, yeah, and I love how the serving TRG guy that you spoke was deadpan, gave mm-hmm. you that response. That's a great response. Um, <laughs> did 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 he crack at all later on and smile, or was it was just deadpan the whole way? And it was a pretty pretty serious, well, yeah, but pretty straight conversation reply. Yeah, it was a pretty straight conversation. He was yeah, yeah. a serious guy, but, but top operator. Like, yeah. He's one of the better guys that's obviously been through TRGs. He's left there now, but he's got a very good reputation. And you guys may Fantastic. know him well, but uh, he, he was excellent and, and a wealth yeah. of knowledge. And uh, I think he was, once he saw that I was wanting to, re- I was really interested, it wasn't just a throwaway question. Yeah. He started to answer a few more questions and go, well, this is what you're going to be facing. So he knew I was kind of serious at that time. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. One of the things that I loved in here, you know, there's an interesting comment that you that you sent through to me here. So as a young recruit, you had a squad leader tell you something that uh, I thought was pretty poor, to be honest, but it's always stayed with you. 
um, and it's something that you've never forgotten and that it actually spurs you on. He's, he's, he mentioned something, I won't say the, the other word, but he's, he reckons that you weren't a copper's backside and it's something that you've used to spur you on and obviously we'll get to some of the many other things that you've gone on to achieve. But can you talk us through, aside from that, what was your initial reaction when you hear something like that from somebody that I, that I would assume that you're looking up to at that stage? So a squad leader... Um, is a squad leader somebody who's going through the academy with you, or are they already in the police force? Yes, so they're your, they're going through the academy with you, right? They've been basically voted as the squad leader who helps you with the, the runs through the drill. So drill is very important mm-hmm. as gotcha. in the academy. So they're the uh, I suppose the appointed um, yeah. squad leader. So yeah. yeah, so he was um, he had a military background as well, so he came from that background and. It wasn't him that told me that I wasn't right. a copper's backside, but he was relaying a message oh, okay. from, from somebody else. And he was actually very oh, supportive. Yes. Yep. He was actually quite supportive of me, but he was relaying that message. And, uh, well, yeah, it was pretty hollow. I felt, yeah. uh, felt pretty gutted. I felt that I was doing okay in the academy, but when... Clearly, that um, people's perception of you is often not the same as yeah, what yeah. your perception mm. of yourself is. Yeah. But sometimes it can go the other way as well. Sometimes it can be a lot more positive than you think of yourself. Yeah. But on this occasion, it wasn't. And uh, yeah, once I heard that, it was yeah, it was gutting. But I regrouped and thought, well, that's not going to stop me. You know, that's not going to stop you. But I've never forgotten it. Yeah. I've never forgotten how it made me feel. Yeah. And that's twenty-five years ago. Wow. So I think, well, okay. During that time. Obviously, I've moved on to different things and achieved different things. And, yeah. And, and look, but they might have been right at the time in some way because, <laughs> as I said, I said I didn't view myself as a, as a tough bloke or perhaps what I thought was required to be a policeman and maybe I didn't portray that. But what it maybe shows is that you can adapt and you can train and you can learn and you can mm. better yourself. You're not just born in a, into a certain role yeah. in life. You can actually change and learn skills and, and adapt and if you can do that, that stands you in good stead for uh, for progressing through your life and, and taking on brand new challenges. Brilliant. Wow. That's um that's really cool because it, it sounds – just the way you described that, it just is, I think, a testament to – well, not only to yourself, of, of course, but um, it's also a great um, – oh, what's the word? Lesson for others, for those that yeah. may be listening. That, you know, yeah, somebody's perception of ourselves does not have to become our reality. You know, we can take on board, okay, okay, cool. I hear you, I acknowledge that, uh, but this is what I'm going to do. So what I'm wondering is, I, I, I can I can imagine how you might have at the time, um, but did, the question I actually wanted that popped in my head is this, from a from your experience, from from all the time, right? Um, from a leadership point of view, what do you think would be the lesson there, as a leader? Because obviously this guy is a is a is a, is a recruit as well, right? but and he's relaying a message. But now that you've got time to sit back from the outside and reflect on it, um, from a leadership perspective, what would be the lesson that you would have gleaned from that? Do you think? Yeah. So I think I think he actually responded very well, and I think that one of the biggest important factors of being a leader is you have to show empathy. Empathy is is Mm. a massive thing. You've got to show empathy. But you also have to back in those people under your command or control. You've got to back Mm. them in. And you've got to encourage them. And one of the big lessons that uh, I've been reflecting on recently through my my learnings and people I've dealt with is that 
leadership is a positive energy transference. So what he did was he didn't say to me, Trav, you know, this guy's probably right and you should piss off. He yeah. said, look, Trav, I don't necessarily agree with that, but just so you know, that's the perception. Um, right. But, mate, I, I think that that's not necessarily the case and he said that uh, he went into bat for me. So I think from that way he actually did very well and he was only a young leader himself at the time, if you mm. think about that. He was only a young man himself. So leadership uh, qualities, we learn all through our lives. I'm still learning things about leadership and he was, wasn't much older than I was. Yeah. So, so I think under the circumstances he did really well and um, it probably resonates with me now because if you do hear a bad message about someone, then how do you approach it? How do you approach yeah. it with him? Yeah. You, you, do you, you know, you, I suppose you should be reasonably honest, but you could say, right, if we need to work on things, let's work on that. Let's work on you as a person so you're not you know, viewed like that anymore. Yeah. So, so it's just one, yeah, one aspect of leadership and a, out of a nice. multitude of things we have to mm. use as, as leaders. Definitely. Beautiful. I like yeah. Great points. Thanks, Trev. Thanks, B. I wanted to um, delve into a little bit more on your TRG selection. From your perspective, how how was that for you? How was that whole uh, going through the selection process? So you're there now, you're rocking up at day one, and then you're into your TRG selection process. What was that like for you, Trev? Yeah, look, very nerve-wracking, absolutely very nerve-wracking. <laughs> <I bet. laughs> uh, you know, rocking up to the office in the city. The office used to be at the headquarters, so you rocked up there. I think we began at 10 o'clock at night. That was when right. the shift began. I thought, my God, what have I done? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is scary. And I saw when we arrived at, at uh, headquarters, I noticed a couple of existing members get their gear out for patrol. They're heading out on their patrol for that night. Right. They their bag and they had their SMGs and their pistols and had yeah. their gas and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, this, is, <laughs> this is the real McCoy. This is real. <laughs> and uh, and then you were treated like every, every, every second, of course. <laughs> yeah. Right, line up, dump your bags there, there for the line up. That's it. You're ours now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was very nervous, very yeah. nervous. And I just said right to myself, you've just got to go. You've just got to keep going. You've got to just do as you're told. Just do as you're told and don't be negative. Just put your head down and you go until you physically can't do anymore. That's it. So I, I, I think I prepared mentally well for the course, expecting yeah. the worst. Awesome. Man, that's great advice. And I love how you've sh- shared there. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of, part of your mindset, aside from being fairly um, quite fit and capable and and prepared in that way, in that physical sense. Mentally, it sounds like you were just ready to do whatever was asked of you. Is that right? Like whatever they came up with, because it's, uh, I can, when you mention that rocking up on the first day, you you bring, generate all sorts of emotions and feelings that come back, like the nervousness, the scanning and eyeing everybody else and go, man, that person looks, that person looks awesome. Man, that person looks big and strong. It's like, what the hell am I doing here? And then, um, but your ability, how did you control those emotions throughout? Like aside from, was there anything else that you used aside from, okay, I've just got to do what I'm, what I'm told. Was there any other strategies that you had, Trav? I think, I think the key is preparation. I felt that I was prepared. Mm. Yeah, and cool. preparation is a massive word. I think preparation is something that we need to put up in highlights for every person is you've got to prepare. You've yeah. got to prepare. And if you prepare, you can go into into activities and tasks with just that little bit more confidence because you know you've done all you can. And even if you fail, you've done absolutely all you can to prepare. Mm. 
So that was my biggest thing. I'm just going to go. I've, I've done the work physically and mentally. Yeah. I've never been challenged like this in my life. What's it going to be like? I've never been abused. Not. Yeah. I won't use the word abused, but haven't been challenged mentally like you do on selection courses. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so for me, I just felt that I prepared as best I can, and that gave me confidence just to attack it and just see where it went. Mm. Oh, wicked, man. Awesome. That's great to hear. And, and I know that reason I ask that mm. is because we've had a few people since um, asking about certain aspects, and more so to do with selection lately these days and preparation. And it's always interesting asking our guests like you that have walked a very similar path and done a whole bunch of other things in addition um, so that people to help them so I know that people will benefit from what you've just shared there in that preparation um, I loved how you spoke about you can adapt and you can learn and you can change some really important parts and that positive energy transference from leadership um, some really just some great snippets so far mate and we're only we're only a little way into this um, so but let us know if, if we're holding up too much of your time because we can we can reschedule you <laughs> it's, it's, it's great reminiscing actually it brings back a lot of memories that you don't often oh. think about so uh but far away, I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's and that's great to see and, and or great to hear as well because that's a key part as well, not only for our audience but hopefully our guests like you that we're lucky enough to have um, gain something from it, whether that's the, the positive reflection and memories and friendships and all that sort of stuff, which is great. I um, So still with, I guess, with the TRG and the selection process and then you go on to your, the, the what's the further phase of training called again? Uh, so we did this selection course, which is a, a four-day physical. It's the physical selection course out in the field, yep. and then they do what's called a six-week close quarter training, which is close quarter the, training. That's CQB close CQT. Yeah, yeah, CQT. Yeah, instead yeah. of close quarter battle, they call it close quarter training. Um, gotcha. Which the introduction through weapons and yep. basic um, room clearances and method of nice. entry things like that. So I think the selection process has changed somewhat these days, but back then it was. It was that uh, four days. Then if you were selected from that, yep. that's when you got to go on to the next phase, the six-week phase. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So you had to and pass what, two phases. Yep. And what was that phase like, the next phase, the CQT? What was that like for you when you've now got this even more information, I'm imagining, coming in? Uh, what was that like for you and how did you process that? Oh, that, that, was, that was tough mentally. And I remember speaking to the sergeant at the time when he said to me that I'd been selected for the next phase. He looked at me, another deadpan look. The TRG guys have these great deadpan looks. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and said, I bet. He said, so you thought that selection process was hard, did you? Well, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> this next six weeks is going to take you into the next level. And so I thought, bloody hell, I thought that four days was pretty tough. What the hell can I do? <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't so much the physical. It became the, yeah. mental, the mental grind. And as you know, it's from these courses, it's the safety protocols they have in place. Yeah. You can't reach certain rules for safety. And if you do, they come down and you're on a ton of bricks and they basically yeah. threaten to throw you off the course if you don't uh, get that right. So yeah. I, mm. I, was, I was excited. Like I felt a huge amount of empowerment because I passed the physical selection part of it. I thought, yeah. I'm one of the small percentage that's got through. That gave me the confidence to think, you know what, I could actually do this stuff. I, I, I possibly could actually do this stuff. So... I got a lot of confidence from passing that initial course, but then the whole the next weapon stuff that was that was next level. And we had ex instructors from uh, the SAS that were working the TRG at the time, and I thought, my God, these guys know everything. They're so so talented, and all the existing operators that teach you stuff, you just look up to them with such a high level of regard because they they're in there doing it, 
And yeah. you think, these guys are just gods. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It's interesting to hear you say that because regardless of, I think Todd mentioned something similar, but regardless of those environments where you've got to put in that extra training, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, a certain level of, I guess, respect that is held, like those people in those in those departments or in that part of the unit that are held in quite high regard. And you, you think back and, you, yeah, that is what we thought, like they're either superheroes or they're gods, like in terms of what they do. And then once you're there, you're like, oh, Kenneth, this fellow's are uncoordinated just like me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's just as unco as me. And that person and that person is quite a hard case. But it's to, to, to that point, though, there are some very gunny operators. And I can't speak for the TRG, but I would imagine there's some very, very high level um, guys that you would have seen. And, and what I didn't ask Todd, what I want to ask you is um, in reflection, is females. Did you, did you have females come through, or are there females in the TRG that go through the same selection and the CQT and all that stuff with you, Trev? There, I don't believe there's any operators at the moment. Oh, okay. There, there's yep. been a few uh, females that have attempted the selection process. Gotcha. And yep. may have, and moved have moved into the the CQT phase at, at some stage there. Yeah. But from, from what I know, I don't think there's been actual actual operators that have come oh, through. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But but they are they are welcome to to play yeah. they're, they're assessed like everybody else yeah. from the same level. So unlike uh, the normal police entry requirements where there's different standards for females and males, right. going for special squads like well, I know for TRG I can only speak for them, but the physical standards the same, yeah. Which obviously makes sense because you're to, to do the same role, hundred percent. So yeah, I don't think at this stage um, Western Australia has, has had a female go through successfully at the moment. Okay. Do you know of any females at all within Australia that might be that are part of the TRG during your time? Or I think well, I did hear that there was one perhaps in South Australia with Australia, oh, wow. awesome. potentially. But I know when I was serving, I believe there was one in in London. In uh, what's their group called over there? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Tactical group. I believe there was there was one operating in London at the time. Wow. But but hey, mm. there's a multitude of different um, tactical yeah. groups around the world, and I'm not, not too sure of the status. But certainly not as many as uh, perhaps Israel have. Israel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. They lead the way with hardcore female warriors. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Hey. Eh? They do. Definitely. Or well, at least that's the perception, anyway. From what from what uh, little I know and have seen. So. Man. Oh, well, cool. No, thanks for that. Because, yeah, that, that was definitely a question I forgot to ask Todd, but I thought it's all right. I can make up for it and ask Travis. So on yours, what did you find? How many started on your CQT and how many finished, Travis? Like everybody that finished that selection, did they complete the CQT? Uh, so we had we had about 33 start the selection process. Yep. Then we had, I think, we had 12 or 15 guys actually finish the physical finish. selection. Yeah. Then they selected... Uh, 10 to go on to the close quarter training gotcha but, and from there we came out with i think six yeah okay right. yeah 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 awesome man. Yes. Tough. so what was um so when you're on in, during cqt and, and you mentioned again you unlike some of the um the others that we've spoken to and they go oh, i grew up with firearms like it just mm. basically coming it was an extension sure. on my arm whatever and, and you haven't now you come into it what i can only imagine is just intensive firearms 
training and, and weaponry compared to, say, even to academy, which you, are, you, know, you would have got an introduction to it. How, how did you find that when all of a sudden, uh, here, here's your weapon, here's whatever it is, or weapons, and it's just constant, boom, 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 you're doing your thing. How did you find that? Oh, mate, it was, it was, it was intimidating. Loved it. Oh, he loved it. <laughs> because also, we were using your old training stuff, so it was like we're the SAS hand-me-downs. We're the, we're the <laughs> so, we, so we used the old kill house from Swanbourne, yeah. Yeah. you know, with a strammer. That was our main training venue for CQT, was the kill house. So the fact that we're in the SAS's kill house was intimidating enough, and to think, right, you've got to go in there and not shoot your comrades and shoot those targets accurately, it was intimidating. But you did get confidence very quickly, so yeah. once you started doing some run-throughs, and yeah. you successfully hit targets and the instructors said to you, that was good, that was really good what you did there, all of a sudden you start to get confidence. Mm-hmm. And once again, there was positive messages coming through and from positive messages, it gives you confidence to then attack the next phase. So from what was intimidating at the start, uh, you became more comfortable as the weeks progressed. Wow. Awesome. Did you did you find um, like these hand-me-downs, did you find a, an old MP5 with this is Joe's gun on it, written on it, on the side of it? <laughs> Any chance? No. <laughs> I think it said Joe, Joe was here. Joe was here. <laughs> Joe was here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. no but yeah, they do, they, get, they do get handed around, don't they? Um, that's cool. I, I like... The that whole aspect and just the picture that you're painting there because it's casting my mind back, but it's also I know it's going to be helpful for our listeners um, hearing you speak about these experiences. And I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> so just on the back of that, when you're going through and probably looking more now, you've you've graduated the CQT. What was the biggest, or was there a point that was just really eye-opening now where you're using the stuff that you've been training for? that you've looked at, these people that you've looked up to, and now you're in the field and you've got to utilise it. Uh, I guess not so much were there moments like that, because I'm sure there were, but was there a point where you got to where you thought, man, this is is real now, it's go time, like we've got the call up and here we are? My very first job that I went on was was the... Right. uh, Starting at the squad was one thing. But the actual job where it's like you get called into the office and they say, right, we've got this job. Yeah. And, and they so right, the team's going to be, and they look, read out the names, and then your name's on it, and you think, oh, my God. Okay. Because straight away, as you know in these squads, you do not want to be the weak link. You do yeah. not want to let anyone <laughs> down. It, it, it comes down to not stuffing up, I think. Yeah. The fear of failure is, is yeah. huge. So, yeah, that, that was massive. And then... And you know, there's some of these early morning jobs we'd do. So you'd have to be at the office at three, three o'clock in the morning to prepare, yeah. have the briefing, and, and you're tired and you think, well, this is the real stuff. This is real. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to kick a door here. We're going to yeah. kick a door. And then actually walking to the house and you're dressed up in, in all your kit and yeah. you've got your weaponry, you've got your MOE tools, and you're walking along at, you know, say four o'clock in the morning at this stage. Yeah. You're going, what, have I, what am I doing? This, <laughs> is this real? Is this happening? Is this happening? Uh, But when that door gets hit, mate, you've got to go, well, yeah, this is happening, and I've got to switch on here because I'm part of the team. Man, you've got to go. This is it. This is is real. This is real. So once you get that first job out of the way, then you realise you are part of the team, and that's it. You've just got to get better. You've got to get better at what you do. 
Awesome. So, um, can I ask um, Travis? Um, and I, I think we we asked something similar to Harry because Harry Moffat and he he shared something when he's talking about um, yeah when he goes going into houses and and looking for a, a, um, a high value target, but that person's not there. But what you got is family um, and and children and stuff. How, how did, did you ever find that you yeah you getting pumped up or geared up or you know, you, your mindset is okay we're going in this is our target this is what we're going to do yeah you, you can see it in your head but when you go in it, it quickly changes and there's kids screaming or or what have you and and how, how does that play with your thinking and your approach to to that job yeah yeah geez i remember a distinctive job where it was actually after the uh, the 9-11 uh, sorry it was after the bali bombings hmm. oh uh, right yeah and there was some interest in WA with regard to potential Jamar Islamia operatives over here. Yeah. So we actually um, did a couple of doors. We kicked a couple of doors um, in relation to that. And I remember doing that particular job and going in. And there was I went to a bedroom and and this was you know this was early morning stuff. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, with the element of surprise and and there was three little kids in the bedroom all in bed sleeping and. Uh, and I think I haven't thought about that for a while. So thanks for taking me back. <laughs> I just yeah. now, what what on earth would those poor little kids be thinking? And you got yeah. these 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 yeah. beasts walking to the room, or well, not walking to the room. We hit it pretty hard, as you'd expect, yeah. given you know, the potential nature of the targets. And uh, and we hit it hard. And but no, you do you do if you if you're a good operator, you can control that, and you, you can calm it down, and you can talk to those kids, and hopefully you know bring yeah. it bring it back down. But uh, look, that's the nature of the job. That's the nature yeah. of the job. Mm. You get these situations, and you can't escape it. It's a tough job, and at many stages you're at the pointy end, and these things you have to adapt to at the time. And yeah. not always that the bad guys or, or girls are going to be caught up in it. There's going to be innocents mm. uh, who are caught up in it as well. And you just got to show. We talked about that word empathy, and mm. okay, how do you then switch? Switch, and I think that's one of the. The skills of good police police officers is the ability to switch. So you could be, you know, going through an absolute rage, <laughs> but then all of a sudden you've got to turn that down. Yeah. Many, many cogs and go, right, and it might even be the case where you, you remove your helmet, you remove your balaclava and you talk to children and go, right, kids, it's okay, you're okay, you're safe, everything's all right. So you've got to be adaptable in those circumstances. Yeah, nice. Wow. Love how you mentioned that. Yeah, great point. Say hey, good mm-hmm. takeaways here. I want to. So this this might lead into maybe a bit of the transition into the close personal protection space after this one, but we'll see. So I know, and I noticed when you sent through a little bit of information, you know, you'd been in the TRG now for a couple of years. We've got through that first experience, and we've been able to cast your or you've cast your mind back to a couple of different situations. And I know that there'll be many more, but we won't we won't harp on or delve into those too much. But a couple of years has gone by and you mentioned the term a bit of cruise control mode and and a conversation um, uh, that was mentioned or discussed with you identified and told, you know, maybe work a little bit harder to reach your potential. And there was a, a great point which made me reflect in your comments. You thought it was a good lesson is that are we really giving it a hundred percent? What was the, how did that come about? Could you speak to how that conversation came about where you were feeling like, I guess you're a bit of cruise control mode and then this person that's identified that has had that conversation with you and, and had that open, honest conversation with you? Yeah, yeah. So 
So this uh, particular individual, he was uh, an acting sergeant at the time. So he took over right. our particular team and he introduced, I suppose, performance appraisals, I guess would be a, gotcha. a yeah, yeah. of it. So he went through everyone and said, right, and went through everyone's where they were at at the time. And he said to me, look, you're doing well. You're, you're a valued member of the team. You're doing yeah. everything right. But I think that you're not quite giving it 100% of what you can yeah. do. I think yeah. you're just you're cruising a little bit and I think you can do better, particularly when it came to things like CQT. You could just be perhaps a little bit more intense. You could step it up a notch. And yeah. uh, and like I suppose, you know, criticism sometimes is hard to take. When you're, <laughs> you're the big shot. Yeah. But I thought I did go away and I reflected and he was right. He was absolutely right. I was cruising at that point. Mm. And which is not good enough when you are, in a squad like that yeah. because you're at the end of the line and you're there when perhaps other capabilities aren't, aren't there to, to fix mm-hmm. the situation, to resolve it. So yeah. you are the last line. And I thought, no, you've got to, okay, if, if people, that's their perception, then maybe there's something in that. And so I did, I went away and I felt that I, I stepped up my CQT training a bit and become a better operator after that. So it's a lesson okay. learned. Take those criticisms, go away and reflect. Don't have to respond yeah. at the time. Take mm. a breath go away and I think we're all pretty good at analysing where we're at if we're realistic I think we all kind of know roughly where we're at (laughs) yeah yeah. that's a great point I think that's I think there's a lot of truth in that as well I love and and this probably leads into the next question that I want to ask you because I was meant to ask you this earlier but I forgot till you've just mentioned it now is that a common thing um, for you guys to give quite straight and or maybe somewhat perceived as negative feedback to each other in the with the intention that it's not coming from a dark place, it's, it's coming from a good place, but I just want you to be better next time you go through that door or I want you to do, you know, be more cognizant of, yeah. of this is what you've done. Like, were those conversations regular and frequent with, within the TRG? Yes, I think that they were, they were common, but I think also you're driven along by the, you don't want to be left behind. You always want mm. to be seen as at the same level as everyone else, if not better. And I think yeah. that's just in our nature. Guys of our nature have gone through these, these processes and and and, and um, worked in these squads. You don't want to be the, the weak link. You don't want mm. to be the last one selected. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's that, that alpha male coming through, but you want to be as good as the next big dog. You want to be just yeah. as good. So there was that subliminal pressure to drive you along as well. Yeah, but, right. But like you guys would always have after action reviews and job debriefs, would always go through yeah. and say, right, what did we do well? Uh, what could we do better? What did yeah. we do well? What can we focus on next? So those debriefs or after-action reviews were always common, and I think we all took a lot out of those for sure. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. That's great, man. I love how you – and having that awareness, because I know I've struggled with that a lot of times, even service with taking that step to reflect on the feedback that's been given because sometimes I haven't liked what I've heard, <laughs> especially when it comes from my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that, there's a question there that I want to ask you. Are you married at this stage when you're going through this this part of your life, like before you join the police force uh, or whilst you're in TRG, you've gone through the selection and the CQT? Are you married at this time, Travis? No, no, I wasn't. Uh, I had a, had a girlfriend at the time and yeah. it was a challenging time for me because on my, I think it was my second day of uh, CQT, my then right. girlfriend informed me that she was leaving and she was heading back into state to live. Oh, and right. 
and uh, and that was pretty hard to take because it was somewhat unexpected at the time. Yeah, <laughs> I bet, I bet. And I remember being on the range uh, up at uh, up in the hills where we were doing our training, and I remember uh, trying to trying to focus on the target, and I was crying. <laughs> I, had, mm. I had tears yep. coming behind my mask. I mean, I was hiding yep. it from everyone else, but they were coming yeah. in behind my mask, and I was crying because I was actually really gutted. I was actually yep. gutted at the time. And, uh, and I had a debrief with my, my training crew at the end of the first week. They said to me, well, how do you think you're going? Is, are there any issues that are affecting you? And I said, well, yes, yeah. there's an issue affecting you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, and they're, they're very good, though. They're very good. And, and one thing that I do, I do value highly from my time at TRG was the empathy that all the guys showed each other. And you can mm, yeah. tell each other anything. And I think that that sort of brotherhood is so important. And I'm sure the military mm. background, you know, the same sort of thing. You could talk to each other about anything, and a lot of you had experienced those same things before, so people could, could empathise. Uh, so, so at that point, no. So yeah, I became single very quickly, <laughs> mm. and uh, and I and then and then I, I had a girlfriend during um, following that. Um, yeah. I had another girlfriend that uh, I was with for a lot of my time, uh, but during my my TRG time when I was also serving overseas as well, uh, and yeah, with, right. with great support at the time. Um, not with that person anymore, but um, right. that's where I was at. Yeah, wow. Mm. Mate, I just I, – first, mm. I just want to thank you for, for mentioning that because there, there's some stuff here that <clears> – <throat> I'm not going to mention the names of people and stuff here, but the courage and the – in my view, the courage and the strength that it takes to share and, and speak to that sort of stuff, particularly from a male in a very – staunch stoic strong uh background in terms of the trg stuff and the air marshal and that sort of thing um the private security sector is not is not that common at least not in my experience but it's i was having a conversation with a very close friend today who's still serving in the unit here in nz and um, what they've been really enjoying is the openness and honesty of those that have come on and spoken about very private, personal things in relation to the effects on their own life and, and the effects of that on their families. Um, because that's where a lot of, um, and sorry to divert a bit, but that's where a lot of some of the, the, the problems are for operators. And I'm speaking from a, uh, from a military perspective this time, because the, I, I'll tell you now, and without a word of a lie, the, the guys in the unit, they're not that empathetic. <laughs> like if you if you are if you are struggling, like what like what you've openly shared here, which I really respect and am grateful that you've done. Guys, like I know for me, I would never, I wouldn't, I'd be hidden away in a corner. Uh, there may be one or two key friends that I would speak to, but to know that the TRG, at least in your time, has has created that environment that should be acknowledged, and I'm glad that you've mentioned it. It's a real mm-hmm. testament to what's happening there. But I know that. The defence force could, and I and I'm and I know that they're trying to work towards the things that you just mentioned, but I know that there's there's guys there that just um, they would view themselves as being weak. They would think they would be worried about what other people would think about them, rightly or wrongly. But um, what you've touched on and spoken about takes a lot of courage and strength, and I hope that our listeners, including myself, can hopefully take a step back and, and utilise and leverage some of that because that's, a, that's an amazing thing, what you've just shared, Travis, and I really appreciate you for doing that. Yeah, I think, um, and just touching on that too, and what Brian spoke about before, the word leadership, that's where it starts. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. if you've got the right leaders in place in your team, they can, they can drive that. They can drive yeah. that culture. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I certainly don't want people to think that I'm talking about we're getting soft, okay? Yeah, that's, yeah, not, yeah. that's not that's what we're not talking that. about. Yeah. Um, mate, these are still 
the hardest bikes you'll ever want to come across. You know, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't want to come across them at two, three o'clock in the morning. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> or any time of day. Hello? So, oh. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So it's yeah. a leadership and, and that's where it starts and, and you get so much more out of your team if you show the empathy to your team. And it's not bloody hard, but I think sometimes when you go through, you become, you're reflective of what you, you're experiencing perhaps. So... It takes a circuit breaker at some point for a leader to go, well, I was raised in this way. I don't necessarily think that's right. Yeah. And and this comes back to another point about reading and learning, which is we can talk about later how yeah. important it is. But if leaders are really good leaders, they'll educate themselves. They'll go and read and learn things and go, right, how can I be better? What are the lessons learned? And I don't think it's until you get older sometimes that those lessons are learned. Yeah. So if these leaders can just, you know, <laughs> it's not hard. It's really not hard. These basic principles. And and look after your people. And if you show them that empathy, geez, you can get so much more out of them. They'll be there for you all the time. They'll run through brick walls if they know you care about them. Mm. Love Ooh, that. Mm. Love how you shared that. Yeah, because that, that's so true. They will. They'll run through a brick wall for you if you can show that you care about them, that you're there for them. Man, uh, yeah, that that in and of itself is just a topic that we could delve into. Maybe we do that another time. But I love those those comments there, and I think that's going to resonate with a, with a lot of people, just what you've shared there, Trev. I, um, this, this is going to, because there's so much, and we're still only going to just basically scratch the surface of our time here with you today, but going through the TRG stuff, we've got a whole bunch of information from you in terms of what that process was like for you, but also learning points which we can take away and which our listeners will take away. But then you've, you've moved into uh, the private security sector, what was, what was the drive behind that? Like I'll speak for myself and I know some people that I was lucky enough to work with on the circuit at the time and I noticed one of the images that you sent looks like it's the Baghdad International Airport where you're doing a drop-off. Uh, when, I was, when I was like, hey, I know that place. But um, I know driver for uh, a lot of people that went over um, was financially. There was a lot of, there's quite good money to be made at the time and um, people were able to get ahead in certain ways. But what was... Why did you go into that space over overseas and, and all that sort of thing, Trev? Yeah, I think financially there's definitely that lure. There was definitely yeah. a lure of the money. I mean, that, that money that they were offering at the time for us, especially coming from the government sector, mm. was, was, was a, a real whoa moment. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I should consider it. Yeah. This is, this is pretty cool. So. I don't think we need to be dishonest about that. Of yeah. course the money's a lure. Of course it is. Uh, but also I was at the stage where I'd done, you know, four years at the unit mm. and also we viewed, I viewed going to somewhere like uh, Iraq as the real deal. Yeah. That was the mm. real deal. I think that, uh, you know, doing police work at the TRG, you're generally going to situations where you are going to outnumber the opposition and you're very well planned. And you can you have the element of surprise. You can mm. actually do think you're in control of most of the scenarios. Yeah. So the lure was, am I good enough to take this to the next level and, and do the real stuff? Because I figure I think that the military guys, you guys, that's the real stuff. <laughs> that's the really big stuff. And so am I good enough? Could I cut it in this environment? And so a couple of the SAS guys have gone across and other military guys have gone across and a couple of my mates from TRG had started to go across. And when you see other people go, it also gives you the confidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't want to say that I was a sheep. <laughs> <because> <laughs> <laughs> but 
but when you come no, no. close friends go, it, yeah. it, it then gives you more confidence. And so, look, once again, I was moving way out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Can I do this? <laughs> Should I be doing this? <laughs> and when I, look, I saw the look on my parents' face when I suggested it, I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> uh, but a parent's always going to give you that look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm going to the milk bar to get a bottle of milk. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah make sure you wear your helmet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so but there was that, yeah. It was the lure of, uh, of, a, of a couple of things. But, but yeah. Can we can we trans- transfer our skills? What limited skills we learned in that environment? Can we transfer them to the real world? Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, man. And how long were you doing that for, Trev? Look, I only did it for for seven months. I did two yep. tours. My goal was to do it for for a year. That was my yep. goal. Was to do yep. twelve months. But during the time when I was there, the air marshal program was recruiting at the time. Right. And there was. And given the personnel who were in the air marshal program then, there was no better time for me to join. So I knew that I didn't want to work overseas forever. I felt right. like I was having a taste of this. It's, it's good. It's scary yeah. as hell. I want to do 12 months and I'll probably come home. And because the catalyst of the air marshals was after about, you know, after a few months, I felt that I needed to, to come home at that point to yeah. follow that path because I was worried that if I didn't take that opportunity, that next course, I didn't know when the next course was going to be. Yeah, yeah. So I, I pulled up my 12-month plan short by few months. Yeah, wow. It's awesome. I mean, it's, it's good to see that you had a plan going in because I know a lot of people, once they got onto the circuit or doing that, that type of work, there wasn't necessarily a plan. It was just go as long as they could, make as much as they could, and, and then see what happens next. That was sort of the, the general plan of, of things, but great to hear on that. And I guess that's a nice little... Um, segue into the air marshal side of things because it is it's highly secretive and we completely understand and respect there'll be a lot of stuff that you can't speak about but it would be great to know I guess from a perspective of what are you able to speak about and what was that process like in terms of joining the air marshal so from my limited understanding you you have to be a, a sworn police officer is that right before you can even put in an application or so at that point of recruiting back then, you joined yep. what was known as the Australian Protective Service, right? which yep. was a division of the Australian Federal Police. Yep. So you went in and, as an APS officer. Gotcha. Um, mm. I think it's changed now where you've got to be a, a fully sworn officer, I think. Right. Back, back then, but you still had to get sworn into the APS. Yep. Still a division of the AFP. And is that another selection, the AFP? Uh, no, no, that was not to join what we did, not to join right. unit. No, not, not at the time. The selection was basically just your, your background. Yeah, gotcha. And that's what they were relying upon. So when the AFP began the program, they really relied upon the ex-defence force and the ex-police officers coming in to bring the expertise in. Gotcha. That they, yeah. they really required. So I remember a couple of guys I served with in Iraq, they, they, they joined the marshals at one point as well, and they brought in a lot of intellectual property yeah. that was transferred into the unit. So the feds at the time, and I think well, to an extent still today, they very much benefit from the expertise coming in from externally. Yeah, awesome, man. And what was that uh, process like in terms of duration or, or what, what's the selection criteria and stuff like in, in terms of when you're going through that to become part of the Air Marshal Program? Yeah, so the selection process was pretty much based upon your background. Yep. And I think that the guys in the unit at the time had a lot of influence upon who got to join. 
Yeah. Mm. Because I think they understood better than some of the existing AFP agents, they understood better what was required. Yeah. And if you think about the worst case scenario as an air marshal, you're at 35,000 feet, mm. you've got a motivated group of terrorists. Oh, what the? Uh, he's, he's dropped gone. out. He's dropped out. Hang on. Let me call him. This is how we roll here on this podcast. Um, but we'll, we'll blame Travis. Uh, where are we? I'm going to call him on WhatsApp right now. Are we going to edit this part? No, I reckon leave it in. No, I'm going to leave it in. I'm going to leave it in. I'm not editing it out. Uh, Travis, are you there? Mate, you, you've dropped out. Yeah, you've dropped out. Like, Brian and I are still in, and it's still recording, and uh, we, we want – can you jump back in? <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll wait. To... Yeah, all good. So this is this is a shout-out to anyone that's watching. Um, in the engineering space, they'll like to engineer our podcasts. There you yeah. go. There you go. And, yeah, and he just said – he said, ah, oh, that's right. He goes, you can edit it out. Little does he know, I'll tell him. No. I better tell him. No, bro, we're not, we're not no. editing it, bro. Uh, that, that's not how we roll. It's the Australian no. connection, WA internet connection. All right. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Interesting. I, I can, yeah, well, it's, actually, no, I won't talk about that. I'll wait till he's back on. It's well, because it, the internet has was got further to travel from WA, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got. Yeah, that's true. It's got to travel yeah. further. Yeah, many there's more five, There's that five-hour time lag between <laughs> New Zealand yeah. and Perth. So yeah, takes them some time. Mm-hmm. So while we're waiting, um, we're just starting to talk about the air marshal program now. Yeah. For those that are watching, did, now anyone tell me that if like Travis does it does it. Does he or does he not look like Liam Neeson? That's the first question. Put that in, put that in your comments. Yeah. Put that in the comments. Yeah, comments. See it. It's just our yes. two mugs on the video because Travis has dropped out. <laughs> I don't know if he looks like Liam Neeson. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. We'll see anyway. People will comment. Yeah. What? Or they won't. <laughs> they won't. <laughs> more than likely won't actually. Okay, who are these two clowns on? Where's, um, where's yeah, Travis? Yeah. Where's Travis gone? Good question, everybody. Where's Travis? It's Where that, in the world uh, is Travis? Yes. It's that Western Australian internet. <laughs> WA think, internet. Because didn't, didn't um, the Premier WA, didn't he like, looking to close the border again or something? So probably that's it. I have no idea. Maybe. Maybe yeah, they shut yeah. off the internet. So yeah, they, they shut they off the can't, internet. Can't connect in case COVID travels through the airwaves. That's it. Yeah. 5G. Omicron. Om, om, Omicron. 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 Sounds like an auto, sounds like a, a transformer. Transformer. Anywho. <laughs> um, but man, hey, <clears throat> while we're waiting for him, mm. just some really good points that he's spoken about, um, mm. which I've already touched on, but that really caught me off guard. You know, the that moment, gas mask on, mm. tears coming down his face, relationship has just ended um, but then having I, the courage to speak about that it's tough man I can imagine because especially it's so unexpected it's like you know you're trying to do your yeah. thing you, I can imagine the head space would be just like all over the shop you know you, yeah, you're yeah. not even you know, you're probably just squeezing trigger 
mm. you know, making sure it's not hitting anyone. It's just going in that general direction. But the same, but at, at the, but its primary thought is about man, what just happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, That's you're rough. right. Yeah, the fact that he could share it was. Um, I think that's important. And that, yeah. that goes back to what Harry was talking about and, and Nick talked about this as well, you know, that, that mental or the brain health side yeah. of things and yeah, and increasing that bandwidth. But that also means the bandwidth to share yeah. how we feel. Yeah. Which isn't an easy thing. It, even just for well, my experience, just for males in general, it's not an easy thing to no, open right. up and share. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad, I'm glad that he has... Um, and, and share that because he won't be the only one he won't be alone in that um, mm. I know there's there's a number of other people that have gone through tough breakups and, and that sort of thing <coughs> which is yeah not a good space to be in and I've seen seen some of the changes and some of those people just with their attitude and approach towards females in general when that's happened here he is let's go admit hey mate you got yeah. us <laughs> well, welcome back. We were just talking about it's probably the uh, the internet connection from WA, like not very good. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few things not going very well over here. <laughs> <laughs> now you're side on, Trev. You've just turned your um, device, and now you're you're side on like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Because <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to fix that. In the video when I upload it, <laughs> it would be first half you're like this, and then the second half you're going to be like that in the video. It's <laughs> not good for the audience. No, no, it's not, mate. But um, no, so, no, that's all right. So carry on. You, you're speaking about and getting into um, the air marshal program and stuff itself. And I'd asked you, I was asking what that whole sort of process is like in the selection, and you're saying more selected for their with their background and their experience, and then you went. And disappeared. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> went on the went on back on the dark web. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So so fortunately for us, the, the the guys that were in the unit at the time knew what was required as operators. Yeah. And mm. they knew more than the AFP agents who were doing the recruiting. So they they thought, well, you know, worst case scenario for this role is you're thirty five thousand feet on an aircraft, mm. and you've got a motivated group of terrorists who want to take over the aircraft. It's going to be a pretty ugly day. Yeah. So you, you need people with a reasonably robust background in, in yeah. tactical awareness and, and that sort of thing. So fortunately, we had good guys in the unit who recruit people of, of our backgrounds into that yeah. squad. So it was a lengthy process to do a lot of um, government bureaucracy and, uh, and slow processing of paperwork and things like that. So it did take a long time for it to get organised, but uh, yeah. once we were rolling and we went to Canberra, then we're on our way. Nice. And without giving the details of, of it, were the, were the validation processes in terms of the firearms training and the, and the targets and that sort of stuff when you're having to go through that, like the practical application of the scenarios and stuff that you go through, were those, were those uh, more intense you found from your side with your TRG background or were they... Or were they pretty much on par or, or similar? Because it's quite different in terms of the makeup and, and what you're operating in with regards to how that might have worked. So I don't know all the details. This is yeah. just based on Chinese whispers and stuff that I've heard. What was that process, the validating shooting and all that sort of stuff like? Yeah. I think the biggest difference is that with the air marshals, you're, you're operating in a very confined space. That's the, yeah. biggest, that's the biggest difference. 
I mean, not that you might in TRT if you're doing a room clearance or a house clearance, yeah. close proximity to people as well. But in in aircraft, you're very you're in lanes, getting down yeah. lanes and and some very very small galleys and things like that. So we had to maintain our shooting standards. Yeah. And we, we certainly didn't go beyond what was required at TRG, but we certainly maintained those standards that we brought across. Yeah. The difference being we weren't using long arms. It was all pistols only. Yeah. So our pistol shooting had to be on the mark. Yeah. So so we still had very high standards that we had to hold ourselves to, um, as well as the, the close quarter fighting stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and, mm. and to you know, wrestle and carry on in a, in a plane. Yeah. <laughs> In an aisle, I mean, imagine that. It's, yeah, I never had to do it for real, but it would have been pretty untidy if you had to, you know, fight in those 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 circumstances. Yeah, I bet. Did um did did you um I mentioned those early days. Did you have uh, were you able to select your 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 sidearm, or or was it a government issued Glock, or you know, did you have choice in in, in your weaponry? No, no, we, no. we used what we were given. <laughs> it wasn't a hand-me-down, was it? We, <laughs> from, <laughs> no hand-me-downs. We, we couldn't bring anything from home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unlike the Americans, I think the Americans might have had a bit of flexibility in that regard because they've probably got a selection of weaponry at home they can bring in. <laughs> yeah, true, hey, true. Desert Eagle or something. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask. I've got to ask, Trav, before I forget. Are you guys travelling? Uh, it's always uh, up the front of the aircraft, or for the most part, um, business class, first class. Oh, mate! You know, it's sort of wide and varied. Uh, yeah. Wide and varied based upon the cool. circumstances of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? Is it? Whoever draws the short straw gets back in economy. <laughs> it's, it's who gets online first and makes it. Like you try to book a ticket to Eden Park or something. Like, <laughs> You've only got this, this, these roads left in the front. <laughs> oh man! Right next to the, on the bulkhead. <laughs> what do you want? The, the, the best available or the most expensive? You know. <laughs> awesome, man. No, that's that's cool. And so. <clears throat> Can I ask if it's if it's all right in terms of because I noticed with the with your air marshal stuff you're leading small teams. I imagine they're small teams. Does that vary as well without giving away the numbers in terms of how many air marshals might be on a flight? Like, well, would, would you have a, a bigger number of personnel depending on the task? Or yeah, so there's always more than one. Yeah, <laughs> I can say yeah. that. <laughs> and for overseas longer deployments, uh, there's going to be bigger. Yeah, cool. On overseas stuff because obviously you're travelling for longer distances and yeah, and that sort of things. So you have to manage the team uh, yeah, well enough over those long distances to make sure that you've got um, guys that are fresh enough to actually activate if required. So yeah, so the, the various teams ranged in sizes, and that also it affected our training in a lot. So we we're, we're training mm. you know, in quite small teams, but then we train in bigger teams, and having to, to coordinate bigger teams is is a big a big task, particularly yeah. if you're say working on a on a seven four seven up and down, and then you haven't got any radios or anything to, to to talk to your other operatives with, so you don't know what's right. going on. So there was a lot of challenges uh, when it came to operating in, in aircraft, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And we had to oh, yeah. work out tactics that would suit us and utilise what we had in our environment that would offer that would work well. So you have to think about that all these tactics were pretty much designed from scratch. 
once after the the nine eleven attacks and they yeah. formed these programs, everything had to be done from scratch. So the guys could draw upon some information from the Americans and the Israelis who were conducting these programs for year, from years before. But yeah. we had to work. It, we had to design uh, training methodologies to suit the Australian tactics mm. and the Australian um, rules of engagement, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I heard. Um, I heard a, a, a um, an Australian tactic is to to keep you guys like COVID is to get a newspaper, but you just have like holes cut out in the newspaper so you can observe what's happening around you. Is, is that true, Travis? Um, I think the sunglasses were the, the biggest. Ah, thing. the sunglasses. You know, yes. You actually fell asleep and you'd have um, <laughs> have the eyes on them. You mean? <laughs> yeah, they're like big. They're like big. <laughs> oh man! Oh. This this is why, ladies and gentlemen, these podcasts are free to air and unedited. <laughs> <laughs> you have the pleasure. You have the, the pleasure, pleasure, everybody, of watching these unedited. Uh, <laughs> Amateurs, <laughs> unedited. Um, what? What? Do I, I'm looking for a flash word, but I haven't got any flash words. Oh. Unedited movie length premiere. No, that's not even. That's not even a flash word. Anyway, you know what I mean. Okay, you, put that in paying, the comments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're paying nothing for it, so just no complaints. All right. So yeah. Here we go. Here he is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's that, I'm telling you, it's WA internet. <laughs> well, I think what they're doing is they're, they're, they're taking these border restrictions to a new level. <laughs> we were just talking about that the first time they cut off. <laughs> Brian was saying he thinks the premiers closed the borders because of COVID. I was like, yeah, they've probably done the same with the internet in case it travels through here. Well, that's so, an insidious disease. They don't know how it's getting through, but it's not. <laughs> Hard case, but but mate, we yeah carry on with um with what you were speaking about, and so you side on again. Oh, you mate. can't. Do- Sorry, mate. Yeah, this this bloody iPad. <laughs> Hang on. Is it I doing can- the rotating thing? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay yeah. Back Sweet. On. Yeah, you're back. 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 Um, but Brian's question. He asked some question again about the eyes, and you the were talking. It, it cut off just yeah. at that yeah. point. But anyway. They had those special sunglasses on, didn't yes. they, with the, uh, the yes. eyes, yes. which were wide open. <laughs> <laughs> what I found, what I what I was interested in, or what I found interesting, <laughs> and it's good because, yeah, we're, we're mindful of um, not wanting to delve into too much details, but it's interesting about the the no comms. Is that still the case, like when you're on a bigger aircraft, or have they got comms now sorted so that you can have better communication? Was it? Did you have better comms sorted for that sort of stuff um, before you left there? Uh, not before I left, mate, so I'm not too sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah okay. Uh, but certainly it's a massive challenge. I mean, as yeah. uh, the great Dwight, Ad- Dwight Eisenhower uh, stated before D-Day, without communications, all I command is my desk. And <laughs> <Yes>. Great comment, <laughs> eh? Yeah, and that really, uh, yeah, that was a challenge for us. But once again, you have to adapt and work out tactics that all work based upon what you've got at the time and what technology is available at the time. And I, I feel jealous in a way for all these new operators coming through, especially in the you know the tactical groups and that, because their technology is just yeah. totally out of sight compared to what we were, what we had back in the early two thousands. They've got everything now. It's incredible. <laughs> 
So we're born in the wrong era. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no, see, you laid the foundation, Trev. You that's laid the foundation right. for them. They stand upon the shoulders of people like you. That So that's that's where they're Triumphs. at now, mate. Yeah, yes. that's it. That's what we'll tell them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah, back in our day, the last of the hard work. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, and then any any other new lot cohort that comes through? Oh, yeah, you guys are the beginning of the easy selections, eh? Yeah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not so too much. Empathy only lasts so, so far. Yeah, that's yes. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's, oh, that's, I think I remember when you were coming through, that's when the standard sort of, they brought it down a bit to make it for people to get through. Yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> no, but okay, so it's good, the banter and the, and the rib jabbing. Um, what I wanted to speak about and ask, I love how you spoke about, and, and this, I guess, for me is, what were some of the characteristics that you, Travis, looked for in individuals that were coming through, whether it was TRG, air marshals, or even those, obviously, you were working with, sounds like, a lot of uh, people that you'd already worked with in the private security sector, but what sort of traits did you find were a commonality? Because I love how you spoke about never laughing so hard as when you were with uh, the guys in TRG or in the air marshal. So obviously sense of humour is something that stands out, but what other things stuck out for you in terms of what made those environments mm. so good for you and pleasing for you to be a part of? Good blokes. Mm. Love <laughs> good it. Good people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's just that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is that we yeah. were dealing with very good people. They they were they were keen, they were enthusiastic, they cared about one another. They cared about they looked at you and they cared about what was happening in your day. They were just generally nice people that mm. could flick a switch if required to turn yeah. on those skills if needed. So you just have to be a good person that, that you could get along with. You need you have to get along with people, don't you? You better have common yeah. common interests and. And that's one of the challenges we face when we leave these sort of sections that you start working with people who don't have the same kind of mindset as you. Yeah. Don't think mm-hmm. like And yeah. we had arguments and things like that. Of course you do. But deep down, you all had this common goal and you knew you had to follow a certain methodology to get there. So, uh, look, that was that's one thing. It's very simple. It's easy yeah. to have a good bloke. But you also yeah. had to have a good bloke that was, that was determined to be almost the best they could be and very focused because we all know mm-hmm. good blokes that just... Um, not organised, you know, they're <laughs> off on tangents. And yeah, they might be good blokes, but they're kind of not very good operators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got to have people that, that want to be good at their job and they want to, mm. they want to switch on and focus and be, and be, be better yeah. than, uh, than what they were yesterday. And, and that's why they, these, lead, these leadership qualities come through, like that sergeant that told me, Trav, you could be better than what you are. So you just got to think, okay, does this person listen to those instructions? Do they take those lessons on board and run with them? Or do they think they are just the God right now and they don't have to improve? Yeah. So you're looking for people that, that, are, that are not you know, stuck up. And that comes to another word too, humility and being humble. Mm. You know, people that think they're just so good that you know, they don't believe anything mm. you can do. And uh, that's one of the traits that I took <clears throat> away from my time with those guys is that, you just had to be humble and yeah. there was no real show-offs in the squad because if you did try and show off, <laughs> the next bloke would drag you straight back down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you brought down to earth pretty quick, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had to be very humble and very and, and, and not boast about yourself. That was one of the things that was probably the thing about in my era was that you, you didn't, you weren't allowed to really you know, boast about things or promote yeah. things that well, which is somewhat different in a way now because now I'm in private enterprise 
I wish I had a heap more photos from my time mm. back then. I wish I had a heap more reference material because when you're in the private sector and with my business and things, you've got to, you're becoming a bit of a salesman yeah. and you have to back yourself and yeah. you might sound a bit wanky, but you've got to sound a bit wanky in some ways to promote yeah. what you've done and, and the skills you can bring to the table because in private enterprise, it's competition. Yeah. Mm. It's competition. And without that, uh, you don't survive. <laughs> you don't have that safety net to fall back onto. So, yeah. Um, and that probably, I'm probably going off on a bit of a tangent here. but No, uh, no, you're, you're leading nicely into what I want to ask next, so carry on, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they're, they're the sort of qualities that we saw that I, I think of with my teammates back then. They're, yeah. they're, they're the qualities that really stood out for me and, uh, awesome. and I think they stand you in good stead for as you progress through your career. Beautiful, man. Great to hear. And, and, yeah, just on the back of that, like I said, so you are leading nicely into the business that you have with Kokoda Crossing, which we haven't spoken much about, but we really want to delve into. I think I'm, I don't know about you, Brian, but I'm happy to leave the air marshal stuff there um, yeah, because I think that's I think given so. a great insight um, to that without hopefully, hopefully without overstepping any boundaries and that sort of thing. Um, but it's great to know that there's people uh, that are, in those aircrafts that are providing that level of service and care for those that are genuinely just wanting to get safely from point A to point B without having to deal with any other dramas. So thank mm. you, Travis, for, to people like you and to those that continue to serve in that space. Um, much appreciated, brother. So, yeah, on, on, on that, where you were speaking about those pieces um, with regards to the qualities that we're talking about, but then what it's led into... I think it's, I had this conversation with Brian on a separate, just him and I conversation about the need to leverage the background that and the experience and the skill, the expertise yeah. that you've gained. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with it. People might frown. When you're in the unit, you, we're not going around talking about all that sort of stuff because we're yeah. comfortable and confident and everybody knows Travis is a good bloke and he's a good operator. I'm happy to work with him. But when you get outside that and you don't have that safety net, as you speak about, with the government security and all that sort of thing, and now you're on your own, you've got to fend for yourself, as long as you're doing it still, and I would imagine without having seen it, you're still delivering it in a humble way, but in a way that acknowledges and gives respect to what you've been able to do. And it's not just you, but it's also been the people that you've been able to work with who you no doubt are acknowledging as well. So could you speak a bit about the business now and obviously the COVID pandemic has impacted that mm. and how you've also, so there's a number of questions in here, but we can break them down. But what you do now, Kokoda Crossing, will probably be a good good place to start and the impact that COVID has had on that and how you've sort of adapted again and, and overcome that, what you've been doing. Yeah, for sure. Yes, uh, so the business, Kokoda Crossing, I, I formed that business back in 2018. Yeah. And, and that came on the back of, of first walking the Kokoda track in 2009 with a group mm. of friends and the opportunity just arose out of the blue where a group of guys said, oh, we're doing the Kokoda track for this guy's birthday and you must well along. So it was just, and I think with something like Kokoda, often it takes uh, a conversation with a group of people who are already doing it to actually go and do it because yeah. it's not something you just go, oh, I might just book in and do the Kokoda track. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah not, not on your own, eh? It's not one of those sort of... <laughs> no, it's not. It's not at all. So when you have a group of friends come to you and say, oh, we're doing it, that's generally what happens. You tag along to that. Yeah. And so that's what happened with me. I tagged along and did the journey in 2009 for the first time and then I, I was invited back with a company I trekked with. They invited me back to work as a trek guide for them. Wow. Started that mm. in 2011. And so from 2011 to 2017, I ran tours for that company 
Yep. And, and at that point, I realised that I felt that I could do this my own way and I felt yeah. that I, I could do it differently. Uh, I think probably a bit better, um, adding a few more offerings for people. And I really loved the story and loved what it was bringing to me. Mm. So I took the, I took the punt and, and formed the business in 2018. Okay. And, uh, and yeah, I had to become a bit of a salesman then and that, mm. <laughs> and that, yep. that's uh, something that we have to, we do have to leverage off our, our backgrounds and the skills yeah. that we have and we can't be embarrassed about mm. that. Yep. So the days of getting embarrassed are gone. You, you can't afford mm. that. If you want to be successful in this, this field, then you've got to promote yourself. Yeah. Not, not you know, you don't lie and carry on like that, but you know, mm. the skills that you think are genuine and you think that people will appreciate and you've got to use those to then sell yourself to become successful. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so it was 2018 when the business kicked off and that was really exciting times, obviously, when you've got mm. your own logo, you've got yeah. your website. <laughs> And you've got your own T-shirts and you've got your own hats. You think, wow, this is exciting stuff. And I was fortunate to have three small trips that year, my first year, including yeah. a, lo- a group of local Papua New Guineans who also awesome. looked after for a trip. So there was three of those and they did it uh, through through my company. Yeah. And, and then 2019 was better. So we had about five trips uh, booked in and we ran yeah. those successfully. And then 2020 was going to be a watershed year and we had, mm. uh, had about 100 trekkers lined up, had a, a big school group over here who were lined wow. up to go with me and, and it was looking really, really exciting. At the end of 2019, I was pretty pumped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bet, yeah. And I thought, wow, okay, we're on here. And uh, and then, yeah, slowly we started to hear some of this news coming through about uh, about COVID-19 and the impacts. Yeah. And then a few restrictions started to emerge in relation to travel and then the red flag started to fly. Yeah. <laughs> and soon enough, it was ripped away from us. And as we know, the last two years have been pretty much the same. Yeah. Wow. And, so, and so for you, just the, the, the business and that is still going, right? It's still there. It's just taken, a, I guess, hit the pause because of the pandemic? It has. So what, what yeah. I did was the actual Kokoda operations is, is, has been placed on ice at the moment but I yeah. I did this year I I diversified a little bit so I had an offering there's a particular walk over here called the Cape to Cape Walk in Western Australia yeah. so it goes from Cape Naturalist down to Cape Lewin so from Dunsborough down to Augusta which yeah. is about 30 kilometres so there is and it's a really it's a well known walking track so but there is a demand for, for people to walk it and for guides to, to take people on those tours so I nice. ran one of those trips this year for Anzac Day, which was which was fantastic. Mm. So I took a group of people down there, and then we did the Anzac Day dawn service at the Bustleton War Memorial, yeah. Yeah. Which, was, which was fantastic. And the other thing that I did was I branched out to, and I reached out to a friend of mine. I'm not sure if you remember a guy called Terry Hewitt. He used to serve in the SAS many okay. years ago, uh, and he's yeah. he formed a business, an outdoor educate, an outdoor adventure business. And he's become a good friend of mine. He also does operations in Papua New Guinea as well. So nice. he's, been a, he's been a great confidant of mine and, uh, and also a great educator for yeah. a lot of the Kokoda track campaign over there. So he does a lot of work up in the Kimberley and doing really remote uh, off-track expeditions. Right. So I, I spoke to him this year and we, we got a group going for, yep. for a remote Kimberley trip. Now, half of my clients, over half of my clients had to cancel because they're coming from interstate and we had the state board mm. in this year. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was a challenge. But next year, I've got uh, about three trips lined up for the Kimberley and I'm running a charity tour for the Cape to Cape 
uh, as well as also I'm doing some work with another company called On Track Expeditions, and I'm representing them to run a Duke of Edinburgh Cake to Cake Walk for wow. 12 students who are coming over from New South Wales, yep. which is going to be super exciting. So we're giving those kids the opportunity to, to, to do this magnificent uh, expedition. So that's another example of, of how we've had to come together during this pandemic time to so on-track expeditions are in some ways a rival company to me. They also run yep. tours in Papua New Guinea, but a lot of the tour operators have come together to help each other during this time. And, mm, awesome. And they're all running tours for each other just to keep for survival, basically. Yeah, and so yeah. a great relationship with uh, on-track expeditions, I'm representing them to look after these kids. And so oh, that's, that's going to be great. So the, for the first mm. half of this year, yeah, we've got some things lined up. Uh, yep. The Dakota stuff is looking promising, but for the second half of next year, we're having a lot of discussions yep. with uh, the Papua New Guinea government, with the Kokoda Track Authority, uh, DFAT, and there's a lot of yep. great shoots emerging for later next year. But of course, we don't expect anything. We hope for good news, but we know that things change can change pretty quickly. So, yeah, so Kokoda Crossing has, has been kept alive. It's diversified a little bit just to yep. keep things ticking over. Still trying to help people, still trying to offer people expeditions and and tours that are going to you know, do things they can't, they don't normally do. So we'd like to, we're still adding value to which uh, to which time we can come back and start doing epic boat stuff as well, which which is a you know, next level expedition. Yeah, mm. definitely, man. Great to hear. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Trevor. I was just wondering, would you mind speaking a bit about the actual your actual? And it's great that. The other, uh, to use your words, rival companies in some ways are coming together. That's a great thing to hear, banding together and supporting one another. But I'm really keen for people to hear about your Kokoda trails of uh, crossing, sorry, Kokoda crossing a bit more in terms of what can people expect when they come on one of your treks with or your team, your staff, um, on one of the Kokoda crossing um, ventures and treks over there. What, what sort of things can they anticipate with you? I think that it can be a life-changing experience for many people, and I don't yeah. say that lightly, and I say that yeah. because that's the feedback that I've got. And people go across there, and I, I have to condition people before they go to basically say, <laughs> going to a developing country, Papua New Guinea is a developing country, they're not designed for tourism, things are going to go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to go wrong. It's just the way it is. Now, we do everything we possibly can behind the scenes to make it run smoothly, I've got yeah. a fantastic team of porters and operation staff who are based in Papua New Guinea, all over the district. They do a great, great job behind the scenes, and they're still learning. You know, they're still learning for, for tourism what they have to do because you know yeah. the way they live in the, the mountains of Papua New Guinea is not how we live in suburban Auckland or suburban yeah. Perth. It's a different <laughs> world, and I think that one of the beauties of going to these places is you get exposed to completely different culture, and you have to go with an open mind. And, and you say, it's not going to be like Perth. I'm not going to book into the hotel and everything's perfect. We're not mm. going to go to the airport and the flight's going to be perfect. Um, <laughs> we're not going to get on that bus and drive to Dakota and everything's going to be perfect. It's not. But ultimately, yeah. we achieve our goal at the end. We, the outcome is always the same. We, we get to our destination and it's a hell of a lot, a hell of a journey on the way. I bet. You're exposed um, aspects of your personality that perhaps you didn't know you had. So it's a massive challenge, not just physically. People straight away think that Kokoda is physically challenging. Oh, I could never do that. You know, it's impossible. But as we know, 
the, what's possible physically is very much controlled with what's up here. Yeah. And so we tap into that with our, our clients and explain to them what's actually capable, what they're capable of doing. And I think when they go there, my big focus is on the history of the campaign. So, yeah. yes, it's one of the most beautiful bushwalks you can do in the world, but mm. we're there for a reason. And yeah. the reason is this absolutely mind-blowing story that happened during World War II, the sacrifice, the amazing sacrifice and courage mm. that was, that was um, you know, shown by these, these soldiers. Yeah. And you use that. You use that as a driver to help you along this track. And when you're feeling miserable and a bit upset, you know, a bit, a bit sorry for yourself, you just have to tap into one of the stories we've spoken about and go, you know what, it's tough for me, but it could be a hell of a lot worse. <laughs> mm. yeah. And they can get through I can get through. And I don't have to put up with malaria. I don't have yeah. to put up with hepatitis. I don't have to put up with these horrific stomach bugs, dysentery, yeah. being shot in the ankle. Shot being at, shot. Yeah. Uh, you know, so... I think people can draw strength from that. And so that's one of the big focuses for me is the history of the campaign. And we do a lot nice. of work about stories at all the major battle sites. Uh, I read a lot of diary entries from soldiers that were there, oh, wow. the first hand yeah. account of what was there. And yeah. I find those very hard to read sometimes because they're pretty they're pretty um, gut wrenching. <laughs> they really yeah. tap in and and I find that that takes me on a journey every time I go there, I get emotional as well. So that um, yeah, it was you you were speaking. The last part that I remember uh, was around the the journal entries or the diary entries that you were reading or that you will read along the journey of the Kokoda, with the Kokoda crossing stuff. Yes, yes. So I find that uh, by having those journal entries, it really can it brings people into the story. They can really feel and I can, they can feel the story. They can feel the emotion and they can feel what the soldiers were thinking at the time. So it's a really powerful effect. It's such a powerful effect on, on storytelling and, and learning history. So mm. that's another big aspect of the tour is, is aligning with the history and, and getting involved in the story. And yeah. I've, had, I've taken some, some soldiers before and I've asked them to read a couple of uh, diary entries and, mate, they last about two or three lines and, and it's yeah. break down and, because it I just bet. resonates, the, the suffering, what these guys went through. So... There are so many things that people will experience. They'll experience the, the mental challenge of pushing through each day under hardship and when they're tired. They'll experience the physical hardship because it is. It's a legitimate, legitimately tough journey. Yeah. They'll, they'll learn about the history uh, of what happened there. They'll learn about Papua New Guinea history. They'll learn about the culture and they'll be exposed to the culture of Papua New Guinea, which is just so different to, to our lifestyle, particularly you know, in the jungle. Yeah. Uh, learn about their own resilience they learn about working as a team mm. and also just to be around this amazing beauty. They learn about this incredible jungle, this tropical jungle, uh, which is on Australia's doorstep and it's just stunning. So there are so many aspects of this journey which it ticks so many boxes. It, it's yeah. just been, I get really excited thinking about it. I get really excited about thinking next year if we can mm. get back. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm really keen to get back. I'm so desperate to get back and see all the yeah. poor and, and get up in the mountains and, and give people this amazing experience if they want to come. Sounds incredible. And how many people do you have um, per per cohort or per group, per, per tour? So we like to have groups from, we like to have at least about seven or eight people if we can uh, yep. as a net of yep. but we can cater up to anything. So yeah, for, the, okay. 
yeah, for the school group, we had um, 30 students who were due to come. We four four teachers. So so we run those tours in a different way. You know, we would have split a couple of teams and so we're not just one big wagon train going through the jungle. (laughs) But I wouldn't say we don't know each other on a tour. So a sweet spot for a tour is around about that 12, 14, 16 type mark. That is a sweet spot. But if you have a group, then you can certainly take a group and, and look after them just as well. Mm. Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah. Mate, as, as we, oh, sorry, Brian, were you going to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to ask a question. It just says, yeah. it goes back a little bit to what you were saying about the journal entries and stuff, but do you find that there are parts of the track that, that you walk? And, um, and from my very uh, fuzzy, limited understanding of, of the campaign, it's essentially Australia going up, the Japanese coming down meeting somewhere in the middle, and that's, that's not doing it any service at all, the way I've described it. But do you find that there are parts in the trail that you or the track that you find that are just sacred, like there's sacred ground, that like this space here is where people fought and died and they fought for a reason, um, whatever side you're looking at it, and, and these all the, the hardships are going on, and you can actually feel that, um, that sacredness. Do, do you find yeah, that? Good question. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, there's definitely some spots there that you, you get the tingles when you arrive. Mm-hmm. A couple of particular battle sites. One particular battle site is, is called Brigade Hill, and that is just an amazing story, uh, Brigade Hill, where the Japanese basically they'd encircled us uh, during a nighttime uh, navigation through the jungle. They encircled the Australian positions. The <coughs> officer at the time, Brigadier Potts, he ordered an attack down the track to try and clear the Japanese, Oh. And that was, uh, it was similar to a World War One type action. It's fixed bayonets, extended line, through. and, you know, you had the Japanese sitting up in trees, they were behind logs, they were very well camouflaged, well positioned, and the Australians were, were told they were ordered to push forward into this yeah. um, fire. And so that's that, that battle is just unbelievable. But what they've done is that, at the time of the battle, they buried, well, in fact, no, a couple of weeks after the battle, they buried a lot of the bodies on top of Brigade Hill. After the war, they were exhumed and they were taken back to the Bamana War Sanitary in Port Moresby. But what they've done now to sort of not recreate, but for the memory of those soldiers, is for all those soldiers that were buried there for just after the battle, they've put a stick in the ground and a little bit of ribbon or a poppy on top of those mm. sticks. They walk across, you come up this really sharp ridge, and you come over the top of the hill onto actual the brigade hill, and all yeah. these are 60, 60 individual sticks lined up in rows wow. with a ribbon on it, fluttering in the breeze. And uh, people walk over that ridge and they just look at this thing and go, Oh my God. And the only other uh, memorial for them is a small plaque on the ground. Wow. A little plaque on the ground. And you compare that to another, there's another famous battle site called Ishiraba, which you may have heard of, and that's got a, a really large memorial, really large memorial. Mm. But this battle site, Brigade Hill, has just got a tiny little plot. tiny, yeah. Wow. Uh, and, and the sticks that are maintained by the local villagers. So the villagers are out in the ground. Yeah. And that, that, that up there, we talk, I read a couple of entries, and I don't think there's been a year gone by. There's a particular entry that I read. I don't think that on by that I haven't cried yeah. <laughs> as it's written yeah. medical okay. officer who is describing the last moments he has with a particular soldier from the 2nd 16th Battalion. So oh, yeah. uh, it's really, really heart-wrenching. But often up there it's a beautiful view but then the clouds will come in and it gets really misty. Mm. So you're up on the mountain covered in mist and all you can think of is 
horrific battle that went forward that went went occurred there between the seventh and eighth of September, nineteen forty-two, and you just feel the ghosts of this particular battle, and and that's one of the places that really resonates with me every time I go. Wow. Man. Do you thank oh, you for sharing that? I mean that that's that's incredible. Like, uh, the way you described, I can visualize that in my mind, especially the the mists. Yeah, and 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 I like the way you phrase it. You know, the ghosts of the battle. It, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's more than folklore. I mean, it's legendary. It's, it's up there with Long Long Tan. It's up there with um, Tobruk. It's you know, Alamein. It, it's those those battles that you've are that the way you described it up there with those battles and the others. Of course, I haven't even touched the surface with the different battles that um, you know, the 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 armed forces have have experienced. But what I've what I've taken away from that is that. Not only do we you walk a crossing or a track that is physically, emotionally, mentally draining on our senses, but you get a spiritual connection at certain points yeah. as well. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, spiritual connection. That's a great, it's a great phrase. Yeah, absolutely, spiritual connection. Yeah, and you get them ongoing. So it's not like you just get it when you go to one particular battle site. You know, you visit a battle site and you stand there and you get it. You get it every day of the journey. <laughs> you get a you get a uh, effect on you every day of the journey because there's a brand new story, there's a brand new battle site, there's a brand new there's a brand new village to meet and villages to meet. So every day becomes really unique, and it's this ongoing stimulation for you know. Well, my tours can last up to 10, 11 days, mm, and every yeah, day is right. unique. Um, but you know, the, with Kokoda, I don't know if you know, but there is a, a, a New Zealand connection uh, with with the Kokoda story. Uh, right? Yeah, there is. There's, um, there's a guy. It was the very one of the very first skirmishes uh, when the Australians met the Japanese uh, was at a village called Awala, and this was mainly undertaken by a, a, an infantry uh, battalion of Papua New Guinean infantry, and that was being led by Major William Watson, who was a New Zealander. Wow. Oh, okay. No, I don't know, know that. that. I don't know that. Yeah, yeah. So he led essentially the first skirmish against the Japanese when they were coming down the Kokoda track. With the Papua New Guinean Battalion. With the Papua New Guinean Infantry Battalion. Yeah, with the support of the 39th Battalion from Australia. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I didn't yeah. know that. That's cool. That gives yeah. me something else to look into as well. But... Um, Mate, those those experiences and what you've just described, like Brian said, just to echo what Brian's mentioned, can absolutely visualise that, and that's why we wanted you to speak about that. What people can expect, I know that our listeners, when they hear that, will be will be excited, and we're pumped, and hopefully things start to open up <clears throat> in terms of the borders and all that sort of stuff, so that you can get back there. Mm. Uh, what we want to do, just because Brian's got to jump off, is we'd love to have you back, um, but soon within the next week if that's okay i don't know what your schedule looks like but um if we could do that that would be awesome so that we could then um close up this particular session anyway uh around all the stuff because there's still things around the transition the connections and the importance of that um that need to step out on your own and and having to not having the security of the private sector um and you've mentioned some other things in here which i really love the deep impact you can have by caring for people. I'd really love for you to speak about that because that links in with what you've just spoken about in regards to Kokoda, the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels and the yeah. care and support that they show and what you're doing in that track. There's so much here that we haven't touched on. And um, I know that 
you know, both Brian and I want to have you back on so that we can really talk into that a lot more. We've got the policing background and we've got the TRG stuff, which is awesome, the air marshal stuff, which we respectfully we leave there because we're mindful of that, that environment and the stuff that's happening there. <clears throat> but also, well, maybe not so much these days with the travel restrictions, but uh, <laughs> might make it easier for them, maybe. But, um, but then your stuff with the Kokoda. And also, we haven't even touched on, you know, how you've been applying in the health and safety space and the risk space and the need to adapt to that. And there's some stuff that I wanted to ask you or that I, that I will ask you. I've got a bunch of questions down here that I want to ask you next time we catch up. So it might take another hour or so next time. Um, if that's okay. Is that okay with you, Travis? Well, more importantly, is it okay with the listeners? It's a, it's a long time. <laughs> It's it's fine with them, I think. From what like, and the funny thing is, we never expected like this time feels like it just raced by. I'm just looking at it now; it's only been 14 minutes, but like the whole thing is well over. I think it's probably closer to a couple of hours. Wow! Yeah, not not including the the hour that we (laughs) we were trying to get things sorted, but time literally does fly by. And what I found was. We were like, when we posted these, we were like, nobody's going to sit and listen and watch these for like an hour, two hours, three hours. Next minute, like the the comments and support has been fantastic. So we right. enjoy sitting here listening to you. And um, and I know that our audience will as well. So we've already had calls for more and people saying that they enjoy sitting sitting them and watching them while they're on their bikes and training and exercising and whatever. So, so many takeaways from you, Trev. And I just want to take this time before I let Brian... Um, say any closing words in yourself Trev just really want to thank you mate for not only your service but the kindness that you've shown and being able to come on this podcast with us and openly um, share a whole bunch of information with us with respect to those various units and stuff that you've served with and maintaining the integrity of those but also what you do how you go about doing that with regards to not only your your work which we haven't touched on in the health and safety space but with those Kokoda trails mate um really eye-opening and heartwarming for me to hear the stuff that you are doing and the reasons behind it and the ability that you're able to have to create that spiritual connection as brian mentioned um, for your your tours and the people that go over there so really grateful for your service mate um, as a police officer as a air marshal um, even your close protection stuff that you'd have done looking after people over there in, in the badlands we call them and just um your ability to be resilient and adapt and progress and do the amazing things that you're doing now. And just want to thank you, mate, and appreciate your time with us today. And we look forward to having you back, hopefully next week, if you, if you get a chance. That's that's pretty much all from me, mate, and really appreciate it. Brian? Yeah, I just want to say that um, for those throughout the listening throughout Australia and throughout New Zealand, actually throughout the world, we'll just call it throughout the world, if you want to come and see a piece of history, you know, this is the man you want to come and see and walk it yeah. with. And you know why I'm saying this is because you can hear the passion of the history that he he has talked about and all the experiences that he's gotten to date to, to help with your journey through that. You can hear it. Uh, and I don't know why you wouldn't want to go and do that, not do that. Right? Um, um, Travis, I, I, I just want to thank you too, for especially the, um, the, the well, one for the banter and, and sharing your experience and the service that you've done. I right, appreciate that. The, but the second part is just in that short amount of time that we were able to talk about a little bit about the, the track and some of those sacred moments with it. You could feel it, you could see it, and you could feel the energy. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I, I like to hear things like that. I like to read things like that because that, that paints a, a big picture. So um, I'm just going to give a shout out, not only to you, but to the Kokoda Crossing. Um, for those that are listening and you want to try something that's outside your comfort zone, but you want to see history, 
here's the man you want to come and see. So mm, thank you, Travis. Uh, awesome stuff, guys. Uh, love that positive energy coming through from you as well. And I think that's what uh, we have to fall back on in these times when we're being really challenged by uh, by business shutdowns and mm. free, uh, restrictions on our freedom of movement and things like that. We've got to remain super positive. Otherwise, you know, we fall over. So, uh, so it's been a pleasure today. Looking forward to uh, when we speak next. It'll be great. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, mate. Thank you very much, Trev. All right, and welcome back, everybody, for part two of this epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast in the service of others who dares wins. We're back again for part two with Travis Hokart. Apologies for our technical difficulties that we had in the first session on Saturday, but we're back now and Travis has been kind enough to join us. Brian uh, can't make it today, so it's just myself. By joining us again, by being back on here, this podcast, and I'd like to say without a hitch, and uh, hopefully we don't have any dropouts like we did in the first one. Well, we took 45 minutes to get going on the first one, but That's uh, right. today's been successful. We learn from our mistakes, Joe, don't we? 100%, 100%. <laughs> and this one, yeah, there's been no uh, no hiccups this time. It's been like logged in, bang, we're in, we're set up, we're good to go. So, <laughs> mate, good to have you again and, and good to um, reconnect and go over some of these things. And But there's been a heck of a lot of stuff that I've really gleaned from your words that you've shared with us to date. And uh, I know there's about to be some more, so... I enjoyed our little conversation that we had just at at the start here off camera. That might come up a little bit later, but I've I've sort of listed down four to five key topics of things that I didn't get a chance to cover off with you um, when we first caught up. And they're based on the notes that you shared. And I really wanted, because I feel that it will be helpful for our listeners to really hear your perspective on these things, especially considering the experience that you have. But you spoke about the value of leaving uh, the security of the government services and having to fend for yourself. Um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of challenges and stuff that that come with that and apprehension and fear and worry and concern and all sorts of things, I would imagine. But would you mind, could you speak with us about that and what, what that process was like for you to A, come to making that decision and then B, following through on it, and see what sort of things did you experience as a result of that, like taking that leap of faith, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. So, so toward the end of uh, 2011, yep. uh, there was quite a few of us in the unit had been there a long time. This was the Air Marshal unit, yep. and we we got thinking, and uh, we we were looking outside into the private sector and private business, and we thought, geez, you know, that does look quite alluring. And one of the comments a lot of us were making were, gee, it would be good to get paid according to our worth, uh, not necessarily according to your rank or how long you've been in there, but maybe yeah. getting paid according to your what we perceived was our worth. Yeah. So we thought, oh, maybe the grass is a bit greener. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, it was a time when the the air marshal program was, I suppose, downsizing a little bit and they were offering some uh, redundancy packages to volunteer redundancy packages Right. So, yeah, quite a few of us left at the time. We thought it's time for us to to venture out and, and try a hand at, at the outside world. And I was getting interested in things like the stock market and, and things like that and looking nice. at companies that make up the stock market. So I had an interest in that. And so, yeah, I decided now is the time to make the move. And, and a very good friend of mine had a building company and he offered me a job in occupational health and safety. Right. So I'd gone and got some qualifications in that. And I had a couple of mates who had gone into that industry and they said, look, this is really good. It'll suit your background. It'll suit your risk management mindset. Yeah. 
Mm. So it would be you would be quite successful at it. So tapping into this, this great mate of mine, he, he offered me a position and then it was for the first time there was no uh, government salary each fortnight. I had to go and get myself an ABN or an Australian yeah. business number, set up myself as a sole trader and then I was engaged as a contractor yeah. doing ock health and safety in a, in a building company. So that was the first foray into the real, the real world, <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, and I did that for a while. Then I had an interest in, in the resource sector. So yep. I, I, once again, my network, and we should talk about that too. Yeah, that I've got that network. down, network, yep. Yeah. So the network, uh, I tapped into that again, and I was fortunate to get another occupational health and safety job in the drilling industry with a drill company working out of Kalgoorlie. Right, and that was really exciting. You know, I was thought, oh, the, the pay is getting better here. I'm, you know, this is this is what I was chasing, and yeah. and I, it was a really tough though. It was really tough to transition into that that part of it, and the transition from the from the the services into the, these private jobs work was quite tough for a number of reasons. Mm. And uh, yeah, geez, within a month of starting at this drill company, there was a, a the price of iron ore had taken a massive dip, yeah. and. In the resource sector, I realised that when this when this happens, they're very reactive. And so <laughs> you go from, say, a drill company that has five drill rigs that are spinning 24 hours a day, seven days a week, yeah. and the price of iron ore drops. So the clients, so some of the bigger companies who sell the iron ore, yeah. they don't need you. Yeah. And it can happen within a few days that they make these decisions. And I was sitting there and uh, all these drillers and these offsiders, like the, the, the trades assistants, they job. lost their jobs mm. in the blink of an eye, in the blink of an eye. And I was I was dragged into the office and they said, look, we need you to, uh, we'd like to keep you, but we need you to take a pay cut. I'm wow. like, oh, okay. And so I took a, I took a, a, a 20% pay cut straight away. Around 20% straight off the bat. 20%, 20%. And, wow. uh, and from there... It, it continued, so there was no no let up, and we lost more rigs. Work more rigs were put on the sidelines. Dragged me into the office again. Trav, want to keep you? Need to take off another ten percent. So thirty percent pay cut straight up. Oh, right. And so that was the reality. That was reality of what can happen in the private yeah. sector. And I know that we're always very concerned in the government about getting our annual increase, our small <laughs> increase. I would have been pretty happy with that little small two percent increase yeah. at that time, as I took a thirty percent shave off the, the yeah. bottom line. So, so what a what an introduction! Far out! Wow. What an introduction! All right, and and how did you so over what sort of time frame? So you got the twenty percent, and then what sort of gap between before they shaved off another ten? Oh, three weeks. Three weeks. Far yeah. Out. Yeah. Man, yeah. and so how did you? What were what was going through your mind then? And I'm I'm really actually. Yeah, please speak to that. What what was going through your mind then? But also, um, the next point that I have got down here was about the value of growing and expanding your network. Because I'd love to hear how that network helped you, if they helped you in terms of getting into that that space where you're at in the resources sector. Yeah, for sure. So, so when I got that pay cut, it was it, yeah, sure, it was it was tough. It was like, wow, this is this is this is the world I've chosen. So I've yeah. got to I've got to make it work. Yeah. And I was fortunate that a couple of my friends had moved into other companies so I could tap into them. And then nice. they said, look, we've got some part-time work coming up. Would you like an opportunity? So between all the work, I managed to still eke out that full-time income, but I was gotcha. doing two or three jobs at the same time to, to make yeah. it happen. Yep. And I was flying off, to, flying off to Port Hedland 
and working on the, the port operations up there and, yeah, flying to Kalgoorlie, doing work up there. So, hey, adaptability, flexible, yeah. you've got to make it happen. You've got to keep rolling with it. That's so, right. Man. So I did. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was challenging. But the network, uh, yeah. which we've just um, uh, touched on, was very important then, but it's also been so important since the, the recent issues with the um, all the travel restrictions and the COVID-19 um, travel shutdown. So that's been really important for me, uh, not just financially, but also mentally to have that mm-hmm. network to tap into Yeah, because, hey, I went from hero to zero pretty quick as well. Uh, from having a hundred clients lined up for a year of trekking yeah. to nothing to zilch, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was really hard. That was probably harder than the first downturn that I went through, only because of all the work we put into building up the business and then having yeah. it ripped away. So, so my network I tapped into. My network had increased exponentially since when I first joined the private sector. I, I yep. now tap into uh, a lot of, lot more business people uh, who had a lot more connections, and they helped introduce me to other people. And that's been really successful um, over the last couple of years for me. Really, really saved me big time. Wicked, wicked. How did you build? I'm, I'm interested in that because how did you build or manage to build and grow your network coming from that a very secretive environment? It's not like you can go posting a lot of stuff on Facebook or anything like that in terms of the Air Marshal and TRG and that sort of thing. How did? How were you able to build and grow your network to a point where? you're able to, to leverage that to assist and, and, and continue to be successful? I think it was from you, you, you have to come to terms with the fact you can't be shy anymore mm. and you can't hide away Love that. At, at the base, where you, at, at training days, where everything's fine. You've got to get out and talk to people and you actually have to make the effort to go and say, ring people up and say, look, I'd love to catch up for a coffee this week. You've got time. Yeah. And if you can line up a couple of meetings each week, straight away you've got two people you've tapped into and then they've got people they know. Then the next week you tap into another two people. And it's all about personal connection. It's yeah. all about personal connection. If you're not prepared to get out and talk to people, meet people and, and join their world and show interest in them, you're not going to get a, a lot back. So you've got to have the courage to say, I've got to push myself. I've got to push myself. And from guys from these, these backgrounds of high risk-taking, Pushing themselves is not an issue. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can push ourselves. We've done it. We've done it for our whole careers, but it's mm. just in a different way. Mm. But use that. Use that as confidence to say, I've pushed myself before. I can push myself again. Pick up the phone. Make the calls. Wicked. Man, that's awesome. Such good advice because that really resonates with me, and I know it will for a lot of people as well because that has taken me a heck of a long time to to come to grips with that, to be able to do something like that um, because it's, yeah, I, I think for me I was so used to being in amongst a group of people, the security of a pay for one, but being in a job that I loved for the second part and being with people that I absolutely loved and, and cared about like, like yeah. they were my family. So yeah. I, I never needed to go outside that. I never had a reason to go outside that. But once I left, uh, I had I had a heck, I had pretty good reasons. Like I need to provide for my wife and my children and their schooling and education, And um, but it wasn't easy. So I know people are absolutely going to resonate with that. And it took me a long time to build up some courage, so to speak, to be able to reach out and, and speak with people and be somewhat vulnerable because I was, I was still still young still not really sure about 
what I was going to do and what I'm going, what I was, what I was wanting to do, I should say. Yeah. So hearing that advice, don't be shy, get out there, talk to people, have a, have a coffee, whatever it is, that personal connection. Um, fantastic, mate. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And even, even as an example, we've got ourselves, you've reached yeah. out, you've decided to head down this path, which is unbelievable to spend the amount of time and energy building podcasts, but <laughs> we've got a connection now. Yeah. We never 100%. knew each other before. Yeah, that's right. We've got mutual acquaintances, but we haven't known each other. Now, straight away, this network's grown. I've got a, another great uh, person in New Zealand that I can tap into. You've got another Absolutely. Uh, resource in WA or Australia. Yeah. So it doesn't stop. It's, it's ongoing. It's forever. Man, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting that too, Travis, because, yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Um, that Brian and I were speaking actually like, oh, man, it'd be so cool. Imagine getting a group go to this Kokoda Crossing with Travis's group. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's get on that. So so these things, absolutely, like, um, and just a testament to the way that you communicate and, and the way that we've been connected through mutual friends and people that I respect who have put your name forward for this podcast, and I can see why. So, Absolutely, mate. It's been a pleasure so far. Anyway, I've got, a, I've got a couple more things on here. You also spoke about, and I think this ties in nicely with what you witnessed and saw, the drill rigs to then offsiders and drillers, you know, becoming unemployed and then having to take pay cuts. And you speak about in your notes the importance of being multi-skilled and, and the need to have that. And so would you mind just speaking about that and what you've done? to try to continually add to that, obviously the occupational health and safety stuff, which you've done and been involved in, but just the importance of being multi-skilled and your tips or advice for people on what they, what they might be able to, to do. Because I think when people hear that, sometimes some people think, oh, I've got to go to uni or I've got to do a degree or I've got to do a whole bunch of study. But from my view, I don't think we really necessarily need to go down that route. You can if you want, but it'd be great to hear your, your points on that. Yeah, I think you've got to really look at some at things that you enjoy doing, stuff that mm. resonates with you and, and keeps you interested. You shouldn't necessarily go and do a course because you think, oh, I've got to go and do something. You've got to try and target something that, that really tickles you, you know, gets you, yeah. gets you excited. But also I think what we need to really focus on yeah. is you've got to challenge yourself with things that perhaps you haven't done before but you will, you could well be good at. Yeah. And you've got to keep challenging yourself. And even if it's a bit uncomfortable, you've got to learn those skills. And, and that's something that I've, I've tapped into, into myself more recently now. Uh, I was given a fortunate opportunity. And I'll mention his name. His name's Bram Connolly. And, oh, um, I know Bram from X4RER guy. Uh, yeah, and 2RER, uh, two, yeah. well, two, 2 Commando. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, so he's now involved in the leadership space. We were in the same uh, recon platoon when it was a four hour commando unit at the time. Uh, he was, I think, I'm pretty sure he was a section commander or team commander at the time. Yes. We weren't in the same team, but yeah, yeah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. So yeah, another another connection. <laughs> but uh, but a couple of things there. Uh, I actually reached out to him uh, last year just to have a chat about his business because I realised that he was growing his business uh, through mainly through social media that I'd noticed, yeah. and so I reached out to him just to get advice. So it was a cold call. Hey, this is who I am. Uh, yeah. I've been following you. Can I tap into your brains and find out what you're up to and, and if it could help me with my business? And he was really forthcoming. And within, within a week, you know, we were going for a walk down the, down the coast there and having a chat about life and business and things like that. Yep. And uh, through that, we've maintained a you know, friendship and now awesome. the opportunity has come up to help him in his leadership business. So 
I'm now going away and, and upskilling myself okay. in this space with with leadership programs and, and things like that that I never would have thought previously that that's something that I'll be doing. But I thought, hang on, perhaps I do have a bit to offer yeah. from a background and you just need to then go away, upskill yourself, particularly in presentation skills, so yeah. talking to people because we, a lot of us have a lot of knowledge but it's the ability to impart that knowledge <laughs> yeah. successfully, clearly and concisely, which is the art. Yeah. That's that's the key. And you look at all these people that are successful that have public personalities and they've all got the ability to present well. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that may have good uh, academic knowledge that are professors and, and whatnot, but you really couldn't listen to them for more than 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> 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 exactly right. Exactly right. So we, we need to look at okay, what makes the good presenters good. Okay, are they skills I can practice and get better at? Yeah. So once again, it's upskilling, upskilling yourself to something new, and and it's and it's going to be hard because it's not what we're necessarily comfortable in doing. Yeah. But we need to keep trying things that take us out of that comfort zone. Otherwise, we're not growing, and we're not getting stimulated or satisfied. So. When you do do something new, for example, the, the Kokoda presentation. So for my yep. business, I've had to become better at presenting the material that we're going to offer on my tours. And my first couple of presentations were, you know, pretty scratchy. But then <laughs> you start to reflect and realise, okay, I've got to get better at doing this. So you've got to keep practising and practising. Yeah. And whether that's just in your bedroom or in your bathroom or in your study at home, practise talking and practise presenting. Yep. Practice the way you speak, your inflictions. Uh, try not to use words. You know, like when we present, and I'm probably saying a few things today that repeat, repeating myself. But we, I do all the time. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> and when you're listening to people, that really comes out. But you forget yeah. you're doing it when you're actually doing it. So you could take recordings of yourself and, and listen to actually how it sounds. <laughs> so it takes it takes hard work. It does take yeah. hard work, but you've got to. You've got to keep trying these things and, and learning new things. Otherwise, you really are. You can become quite stale and, and dead in the water, but it gives you the confidence to attack the next stage of your life. So you don't have to fall back upon what you've always known. Yeah. You go, no, I've got the confidence. I can practice. I've got the skills. I'm going to go to the next phase. So that's what I've been trying to tap into is, is getting, getting those new skills and then making sure that I'm competent enough to be successful in the next phase because you don't want to seem like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's, I think for, well, not I think, I, I know for me, um, that's probably one of the biggest, biggest fears and challenges and obstacles and roadblocks for myself, like even stepping into this podcasting arena. It's like, who's going to listen? Like, who, who's going to listen to that? Who's going to want to come on for, for starters and who's going to take the time to listen? And, yeah. Um, those challenges have been have been quite tough for me personally to try to overcome. So listening to you speaking about the need to present and communicate, it's yeah, you can have a whole bunch of knowledge, but if you can't deliver it, if people think you're a wanker, well then they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And the other thing too is that we've got to overcome this this fear of being embarrassed as well. Mm. You've got to put that to Speak. the side and just forget about it. Like you say to yourself, I'm not going to get embarrassed. I don't care. I'm giving this a go. I'm trying. Yeah. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but at least you've given it a go and you've tried. Yeah. So the, the word embarrassment for me is something I've been trying to really tap into. And I, I would like to highlight that this is all stuff. This is not easy. Like you've got mm. to, it's, a, it's an ongoing work in progress. Yeah. You don't just snap your fingers and go, right, not going to be embarrassed anymore. Right, this is easy. <laughs> it's not the case. 
these are, are points of reference you can use to continually try and get better at. Yeah. So I think if we are going to step out of our comfort zones, the word embarrassment, just shelve it, shelve yeah. it, and just keep trying. And if you crash and burn, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> Try again, right? Still alive. Get up again. Yeah. Still go again. We've got another opportunity. Awesome. I love that. I love that because uh, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with um, a guy by the name of Bill Bestick. I have a lot of respect for him, great mentor, great leader. But he, he spoke about, so he, he transitioned out of the New Zealand SAS and become a doctor. So he's an anaesthetist wow. now wow. and a helicopter pilot. So he's based over in Sydney. Oh. Very, yeah, he's an overachiever. Let's not, let's, not, <laughs> let's not wow him too much on this podcast here. No, he'll probably have a listen and have a laugh. I'll send it to him. But um, he, he spoke about uh, failing his, his exams and stuff like that and, and speaking to people and he'd always – Ask him the question because I think it got posed to him. Um, and it's like, oh, I don't think I can do this because he failed the exam. And it's like, well, you, you don't, you haven't failed, you, you quit. So he, he failed his, his exam a number of times, but just because he failed didn't mean like he, had, he still had the choice. The power was his to make that decision to stop and give up and go, that's it, I can't do it anymore, or pick himself up, dust himself off, and try again. Which is yeah. essentially sounds. I love the words that you're you're saying. Just just try again. Don't worry about it. Who cares if you don't get it that first time? Like you can yeah. still go again. So really yeah. appreciate you sharing those comments, um, Trav. They they really resonate with me and just reinforce some of the words that have been shared so far. Yeah. Hey, I, I wanted to ask you because we were speaking about. Um, spouses, partners, the other half, sometimes they can feel, because I mentioned to you, I'm going to have the privilege of, of um, having one of the spouses of a uh, of Harry Moffat, um, having Harry Moffat's spouse on the podcast. So another spouse within the, I guess, the industry of former SAS operators, but um, they really have a story. And, and likewise, it is with police and TRG and air marshals and stuff. And so your situation and stuff, and the work that you've done, because you were in the Air Marshals program for eight years, nine years? Yeah, eight years. Eight years. And were you married then during, by that time, um, even prior to or whilst you were whilst you were in? No, no, I had, had a girlfriend during that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 but I wasn't, wasn't married. And is it the same girlfriend or partner that you're with today? No, uh, no. No, okay, yeah, sweet. No, that's all right. I was just really interested. I wanted to get your insights in terms of maybe from a relationship perspective, and maybe we, we still can. I'd like it if you, if you would speak about that. Um, did you notice any challenges? And reason for this is because I know a lot of people that have served either in the police or, or defence force in general, relationships are hard, especially when, when there's mm-hmm. – when it's the nature of the work, and obviously it's a very secretive type of work that you that you personally have done and have been involved in, and uh, it can feel difficult for the guys that I've served with to to find something to speak with their spouse about, um, or to keep the communication as strong as what they might like, or particularly as long as what the, as strong as what the spouse might like. Did you encounter any challenges like that from a relation, and did you feel that um, the nature of your work? negatively or in some way impacted your, your relationships in general? I don't think it was a negative overall, but we certainly yeah. faced challenges uh, going through that. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that my uh, girlfriend at the time was, was very very supportive of what I was doing, particularly mm-hmm. travelling to, to Iraq and going over yeah. there for quite a few months, and that would be something that, uh, that you know, military listeners would 
<laughs> resonate with. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're going away for a lot longer than that, so you've got to have a really supportive partner. But yeah, we face some awesome, some big challenges, and I, I suppose from her perspective at the time, she relied upon her support network that she had around her, her friends and her family. Mm. That was really important for her, and I know that at one stage there, one of her friends. I'm not sure how good a friend that she might have been, but uh, she advised her that she should dump me. <laughs> she said, <laughs> just get rid of him. Just get rid of him. If he's going to go yeah. away and do these crazy things and leave you here to worry, well, there's other guys out there that won't do that. Just just go. Just just dump him. Oh, my goodness. So I guess uh, everyone's got a, their own perspective <laughs> on life. And, um, maybe maybe the characteristics which lead us to go away and, and do these things are characteristics that our, our partners actually like. Mm. Potentially, yeah. that's why they're attracted to people that's a great point. like us. So, so yeah, I think that everyone will go through these challenges. I've been very lucky to have very supportive, you know, supportive partners at the time when I was air marshalling. Mm. They understood that uh, my, my longest deployments were probably one, one to two weeks, so it wasn't that that bad. But I was travelling yeah. interstate quite a bit, overseas yeah, quite a yeah. bit. But they, they they supported me. They they realised that's what I wanted to do, and and I was still the same person. Yeah. Uh, so, so they were fantastic, but yeah, geez, to I think the stories of, of spouses, and I think that's great. You've been tapping into that, particularly yeah. with uh, um, you spoke about potentially Harry's wife that you spoke yeah. to, and uh, to get their perspective because, geez, everyone goes through stresses, don't they, behind the scenes that we we don't we don't appreciate. And one concept that I've been introduced to, actually from from Bran, which has been fantastic, is this concept of the invisible backpack. And right. the invisible backpack is something that we all carry around with ourselves, but it's invisible. So no one knows the stress and the dramas that you're going through at that particular time. Yeah. And I think that some of the spouses, people have got no idea what they're going through. All the, all the, the, the uh, I suppose, not the accolades, but the attention goes on to the, the guys who are out overseas doing their mm-hmm. thing. But people tend to forget about these poor people left behind and what, what yeah. they're going through. And not just spouses, but parents, uh, yep. children of children—they all, yeah. they're all, they're all affected by it. Yeah. And I know that my parents uh, were affected by my service in Iraq, big time, yep. because at that time was when all hell was breaking loose, yeah, and very, private very contractors, yeah. yeah, private contractors were getting targeted, and we had that yep. horrific attack at Fallujah, and all that type of stuff. So yep. everyone, everyone's suffering uh, in some way, and they've got this little backpack they're carrying. And in that backpack, there are these mindset, these stresses and yeah. things in life that, is, that, that they're struggling with. But uh, until we actually go and talk to them and find out what, what's in that backpack, you don't know. Yeah. I love, I love how you've shared that and that concept from Bram with the invisible backpack because it just it really highlights to Brian and I one of the reasons why we wanted to create this podcast is that you, you hear that story, you hear that term, and it's a bit of a cliche. Everybody's got a story, but that's true. Um, and everybody's got that invisible backpack, regardless of what type of life they've led or lived or walked or whatever. Yep. They're carrying something there, and there is, along with the stresses that you've highlighted and pointed out, along with the challenges that we don't see, there's also from our from our perspective, the gold and the treasure in there as well that can be if it's brought out and the person has an, has the platform to be able to share that the the flow on effect the positive flow on effect that that can have down the line is yeah. is incredible. Like we can't well Brian and I can't comprehend it, but we know that it's there. It's one of those things that 
we can't articulate very well, but we know that as people have have received more from your invisible backpack through what you've been sharing here, for example, mm. that one person at a time, one story at a time, one experience at a time, then evolves to the family, to the community, and hopefully broader um, is going to be really helpful. So, yeah, that, those are great points. I love how you've mentioned that invisible backpack. That was from Bram, you said, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, nice. It's, it's it's really good. It does resonate with, with yeah. people that we talk to. They they, they go, yeah. I mean, we all know that there's that concept there that people yeah. are carrying issues, but to put it into a, a phrase yeah. makes it a bit easier to explain to people. So it does. But that ties really well into the word that we used yesterday quite a bit uh, in part one, empathy. Yeah. So if you have that empathy, just say, look, that guy, that person might be under a bit of pressure right now. That's why they've mm. reacted in, in the way they've reacted. Then <laughs> there could be a, world, a good reason for that, yeah. a really good reason for that, that we actually don't know. And that's why it's so important to be empathetic and uh, to tap into people and even ask them how they're travelling and do they want to, do they want to talk about anything or is there anything we can do to help them at this moment? Yeah, nice. So they might think, oh, that's my that's my out. I can actually let go and talk to this person and explain yeah. what I'm going through, and that it might, might just might help the situation. It might diffuse a potential problem or an argument that you you might be having. Absolutely, great points. And how, uh, what I wanted to ask you as well, because I, I think you've summed that up enough there nicely for us, was about the health and safety space and moving into that. How did you find, how did you find that from your perspective, from the the background that you have, policing, TRG, air marshals, a whole, whole bunch, but it's very, I found it to be very different. Um, obviously from a, I found the work easy, but I found it different in terms of for me, the, the legislation requirements. So that might not have been quite that difficult for you because of your background. But for me, the Mine Safety Inspection Act and regs was a blank and a mission for me to get my head around. And I still don't have my head around it. And no. just the Australian New Zealand standards for certain things, because then I was doing the training and assessing and I needed to be able to refer to the right documents in regards to the equipment that's been used, whether it's confined space or whether it's work at heights or rope rescue or whatever. Yeah. It's just um, how did you find that having the experience that you have, but morphing and delving into the, the I guess, somewhat bureaucratic health and safety aspects of, of that? I know they're coming with a good reason and good intentions, but some of it, from my experience, was quite long-winded to achieve uh, a result, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so how did you find that? I found it challenging, and I continue to find it very challenging to this, to this day. <laughs> oh, You've good. summed it up. You've absolutely summed up perfectly. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, uh, I found it challenging in so much as when I went into that space, you're actually on your own, a fair yeah. in that health and safety department. So you become almost like a policeman. Yeah. So it's similar yeah. to what I left. However, in the police force, you've got a, a big group around you that you can that support you. You can right. tap into that support. But when you join the private sector in health and safety, <laughs> you're your own person. That's it. And people look at you as being this handbrake that's about to rock up and stop their job, <laughs> cause them grief. And and you can feel it. You can actually yeah. feel that negativity. Yeah. And and who do you go back to 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 talk to about that. Your desk. <laughs> no one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you are quite you are quite isolated and and also there is a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and paperwork yeah. that's been created over the years that I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people these days, I think people are finally getting it that we've built a, 
a very big rod for our own back yeah. when we don't necessarily have to. So we've gone way above legislation requirements. Yeah. And it, it's just become, yeah, it's just become very inefficient. And I, yeah. I try and look back at it to the work we used to do in the police and the military. And, and we used to do paperwork and documents for certain operations. You'd do operational orders yep. as part of your planning, but you wouldn't do all this paperwork every day when you went training. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we're climbing up ladders under the second floor of the MOE house and we're smashing glass and running through with guns and stuff. And we didn't we didn't stop and do a take five, take five. or go to JSA every time we did it. We, we were trained on the job and we discussed yeah. how we are going to do it and we were shown how to do it. Yeah. And that, that's how we went through. So for me, that was a far better way of training and learning mm. was, was to talk about things and, and be trained on the job like that than always stopping and doing more paperwork, which puts more stress on people. Yeah. It, you lose momentum. And uh, I think oh, there's got to be a better way of doing it. And yeah. I try to implement change here and there, but you're also uh, facing challenges of the, the wider, broad industry and businesses who seem to think that more paperwork will actually save their ass yeah. <laughs> in a in a courtroom or a hearing and that sort of thing. But when you tap into the, the experience of the lawyers, and I've once again I've got my network and I've got yeah. people I can talk to, they, they they say it's not not actually the case. Yeah, and uh, we've we've built a lot of our own backs in many regards. So that's in that way, yeah, that that uh, risk management, occupational health and safety space certainly in Australia is a challenging area. Mm. Yeah, well, no, that's it's great to hear you speak about that and and sounds like we have a lot of the same experiences in that, in that regard to that with regard with regards to those so mate that's um it's been very cool to hear those those were hang on let me just check these notes here you've gone over that that things that would challenge and take you outside your comfort zone you've spoken about that as well really well um mate i've i right now from my side don't have any further comments or questions at this stage other than to ask you um, is there anything in particular right now because sometimes what happens when we've had guests on I've received messages a day or two later sometimes a, uh, sometimes a week or two later going oh man I wish I had spoken about this or oh, I could have spoken about or this popped up in my head since we spoke yesterday or day before you say whatever um, it'll be great next time we catch up and we can still catch up again later on because uh, hopefully the next catch up will be talking about Kokoda Crossing and, and coming uh, coming across there on one of your tricks um, and, and experiencing that. But has there been anything since we caught up Saturday, and there doesn't need to have been, but is there anything that you felt um, that you might have wanted to speak a little bit more about for our listeners uh, today? I think one of the things that I've uh, probably revisited lately yeah. Uh, for myself is my own uh, is education for myself and mm. and learning, and I don't think we can put a price on the value of reading education. and learning yeah. new things. And one of the conscious decisions I've made lately is is I found because I've been struggling a lot with you know, the business has, has obviously taken a massive massive hit the last two years. Yeah. Uh, girlfriend at the time, a girlfriend now. You know we've we've had our struggles from being based interstate because yeah. uh, in Australia we've had some really significant border. Closures. closures. We yeah, haven't yeah. been able to move move around, so I was really struggling in many regards mentally with that, and and also tapping into the news cycle each day was it was doing my head in, really doing my head in because it was it was the same news over and over again, and it was all negative, and all, all mm. through. You know, I mean, we know what the media is about. We know what the mainstream media is <laughs> about. They're really about engagement, and to get engagement, they really need people to be enraged and upset <laughs> and angry so then that they go onto the cycle and they click on the links and 
it goes through and that's how they get their revenue. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone really knows that. So I found that I wasn't learning anything new. I'd be, I'd, in some ways, I was almost stagnating. Like we mentioned that word before, I was stagnating. Yeah. So I've made a big conscious decision and I, I really don't tap into the news much at all anymore, but I'm reading more. I'm yeah. reading. I'm getting books and I'm reading. And whether it's you don't have if you're not a great reader, that's okay. There's audio books you can yep. use. But learn things that are going to help you get better and get better at your job, get better at being a better person, and just growing yourself. Because mm. we don't get that from the mainstream media these days. There is little there that is is helping you grow and get better and learn. So find a topic that you like. And just there are so many reference materials out there. There's so many books. Uh, there's a great site at the moment, Brothers and Books, on Instagram, run right. by veterans, Brothers and Books, and uh, and they've got great ideas on things, books. on things to to read. Yep. So don't be afraid to focus your energies because we we only have limited energy each day. Focus that on tasks and focus that on learning that's going to help you get better. In, oh, yeah. in aspects of your life. So that's one big thing, a big change that I've made recently and I'm feeling a whole lot better for it. My mind is clear, far more clear. And I think, once again, that it's the adaptability, these skills of adaptability that we've learnt all through our careers. Yeah. I'm just using that, again, to try and adapt to my situation and make, make it better for me. So that's one big thing that I've taken home the last uh, couple of months. Man, beautiful. Can I, can I ask what um, what topics or what types of books are you reading at the moment or are you, are you interested in? Yeah, so probably it ties in with what I'm learning about my new vocation in leadership and yeah, those nice. are the topics. So that, cool. there's some great uh, books on, on leadership. So Bram Connolly has written a, a great book, The Commando Way, which is yeah. worth looking at. Uh, there's you, you would have heard of Jocko Willink. Yeah. Uh, Jocko does some interesting stuff in the leadership space. So it's good to get um, people's opinions from, from different walks of life yep. uh, because not everyone has the silver bullet. I've also tapped into a great book recently called The Resilience Shield. Ah, uh, yep, with written Tim by, and Ben and Kurt, uh, Tim Curtis yep. and Ben Pronk and Dan Pronk. Yeah, correct. So yeah. That's, a, that's a fantastic book and that, yeah. that just highlights some areas that we can work on to help ourselves if we are struggling. So that's another yeah. great resource. So they're the sort of books as, as well as the military history that I, I'm always reading. I'm yeah. always wanting to learn about and get better with my, my understanding of history, especially around the Kokoda campaign and World War II. So yeah. there's a lot of books like that. So they're the things that I'm tapping into at the moment and it's really, really helping my mind. It's great. Awesome. So good to hear, mate. And, and really, yeah, very, very pleasing to hear that you're in a good space, uh, that you've shared some tools and information that – I know can and will be very helpful like that reading and education and learning and exposing ourselves to that um, is ongoing. Like you said, we'll, we'll continually be learning right through to the day that we um, eventually depart this life. So love the fact that you've shared that, loved the comments that you've, that you've spoken about in terms of this follow-up from our first initial catch-up. And really enjoyed the laughs with you along the way and uh, connecting with you. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend and share this space with you, to hear you speak um, about the topics which you've, again, so openly and warmly shared with us and with our audience um, today, mate. And uh, I'll be making sure to send this through to you once it's um, about to go out. There'll be a few little trailers that will come out prior to it. 
And uh, mate, we look forward to reconnecting with you again in the in the future. We want to take this time to just wish you and your loved ones, those closest to you, a very safe and merry Christmas, mate, and all the best for the for the new year. And particularly with Kokoda Crossing, we look forward to seeing the success of that and seeing that grow. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the on the podcast again to see where we're at. Um, and what you've been able to achieve and do and share some more insights with our audience, mate. And so nothing but the best. And uh, thanks again for your time. Oh, that's great, Joe. And, and thanks to you and Brian. I think uh, what you fellows are doing is, is sensational and you are going to help people. And anything you can do in life that helps other people is very, very rewarding. So congratulations on the podcast. Thank and for any listeners who are keen on uh, on a journey, we've got some good stuff planned for next year still. We've got the Kimberley trip up into the wild, remote Kimberley uh, in June next year, which is going to be June. a spectacular journey with uh, my mate Terry Hewitt, who I, I spoke about, bushcraft and navigation work up there. And we've also got uh, a Cape to Cape trek happening down um, between Dunsborough and Augusta, at uh, Dunsborough and Augusta. That's coming up in March next year. Yep. And hopefully in the second half of next year, we will be venturing back to PNG. But that's uh, a watch this space at the moment. So if anyone wants to jump on these amazing trips, then give us a buzz. And uh, yeah. happy to talk about anything as well. So if any of your listeners just want to have a chat about life and tap into my experiences, and I'm always, always very open to that as well. So thanks, Joe. Awesome, mate. Thank you very much for that, Travis. Appreciate it. And as always, we sign off these podcasts or this series, Who Dares Once.